Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. book Between the World and Me by Tenahasi Coates was an intimate letter between a father and son about being black, being a man, being American. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. I'm sorry that I cannot save you. I have always wanted you to attack every day of your brief, bright life in struggle. Now it's been reimagined for television. It's on HBO. Adapted by Camila Forbes, actors, including Mahershala Ali and Angela Bassett, present the author's words as part of a kind of visual essay. Their monologues mixed in with a collage of historical photographs, news clips, and hip-hop. When I spoke with Coates about the HBO special, I asked him why he wanted to bring his words to the screen. You know, I, I watch Courtney Vance and, and, and what he does... I delivered food for a small deli. I was trying to be a writer. You know, it's not something that I can put in the book or would know how to uh, do myself, much less elicit, you know, as, as a director or anything. Like, I just, I don't know how those powers. Everyone has a story. Here's mine. You know, and then you, it contrasts with that very bracing moment when uh, Breonna Taylor's mother. It was about 11 o'clock the next day tells you very matter of factorily. I think that's how you say it, I think. Um, what happened to her daughter? And I said, where's Brianna? Why won't anybody say where Brianna is? You know, um, I just, I love books. Books are an intimate, direct, one-on-one -on -one experience. But it is, again, necessarily limited. You know, I was certainly aware and have been aware for, you know, all my literary career that there are moments when a um, certain black and almost always male voices, you know, become the quote unquote spokesman for a community. And even before Between the World and Me, that was not a space I really was interested in occupying. Um, you know, I didn't write Between the World and Me saying this will explain to America what it's like to be black. So was it weird for you to see this past spring essentially another crop of works that were being forced to do that work? Meaning 
coming out of what I jokingly called the awakening, a lot of people rushed out to bookstores to actually learn this lesson that you're talking about, which is what it's like for Black America, and thought that they could do that um, through their books. I felt bad. I felt bad. I definitely felt that there was an entirely different crop of writers, you know what I mean, who were being asked to carry something. And non-Black people and, and white people write best-selling non-fiction or fiction all the time. And it's not meant to assume the entire weight of a struggle. Um, that's a tough thing for a writer, intellectual, artist, or whoever to carry. Um, and, and, and frankly, it's too much. You know, um, if I read another piece or see another piece telling me what's wrong with Robin D'Angelo, oh my God, Lord, <laughs> like really, <laughs> really, really? And that, that's not to take, you know what I mean, to say that, you know, white fragility is great or, or not. That's not really the point. But really, really, does it demand that outsized response? Really? You know what I mean? Or, or Ibram Kendi's work? You know what I mean? Um, the amount of it, I mean, it's just, um, I think it's, it's it's way, way out of, you know, proportion. You, you know, no one should have to, you know, carry that much. Now, it's one thing for Coates, a MacArthur Genius Grant winner, a public intellectual, to carry that burden. It's another thing, I asked, about that being carried by everyday Black Americans who may have found themselves on the receiving end of exhausting questions about race and racism this summer. It's never fun to be a Black person in that position, to have to, you know, explain, you know, what is effectively all your years of life experience to somebody else. The curse of power is that the person who is in power and who enjoys privilege always, always knows less about the person who lives under the weight of that privilege than the people who are actually, you know, under it. The slave always knows more about the master than the master knows about the slave. That, that's what I'm trying to say. And so what are you to do if you're in a privileged position and you, you know, decide that, you know what, I actually do want to know more about this person's life. Well, you got to ask. You got to ask. And, you know, this is weird to say, but and maybe I should just speak for myself. Um, I, I am sympathetic to sincere people who have been or who rather have inherited uh, the burdens of power. That's a strange way to think about it. But um, there's an ignorance that comes with that. And people asking sincerely, I want to emphasize that, sincerely, you know, to be assisted in unburdening themselves of, of their ignorance, you know, I, I think deserve a, a charitable greeting. Did you find sincerity in that national moment? Yeah, I did. I did. I think um, when a, a, a 75-year-old white man um, stands up in front of uh, an advancing phalanx of uh, Buffalo policemen in full riot gear and they push him to the ground and, and bust his head open. That's pretty sincere. I think that's pretty sincere. You know, when I see um, folks organizing for, you know, uh, to honor the memory of, of Elijah McClain and play the violins and the police just, you know, show up and, and brutalize people. When I look out and the majority of those people are not black. I think that's sincere. The question is, is it enough? It's probably not enough. <laughs> But again, I, you know, I, like this is what we ask for. We ask people to listen. I am happy to see that. It just doesn't mean that it's the end of the conversation or the end of the war or anything like that. But it's a moment. 
It's a moment. In the ways that this has gone beyond the issue of policing, in the ways people are starting to talk about racism or institutional racism, is that a different kind of progress? Or do you, do you see anything in that of, of value? I think what has legitimately changed is there are significantly more non-white people and specifically black people in areas of power in the world of media, culture, and the arts. And so I think what is changing is the story America tells about itself and how it tells it. I, I, I think that's definitively changed. That's clearly changed. I think that's a very, very real statement. I think the very fact that, you know, HBO is, you know, uh, airing, you know, uh, th this special um, is a statement of what has changed in relationship, you know, uh, between black people and the media and the arts. That's a statement, a statement on how, how, how much things have changed. Tenahasi Coates, the screen adaptation of his book, Between the World and Me, is on HBO now. In the wake of protests this summer, there have been calls to re-examine cultures of bias within police forces. And these calls aren't limited to city cops. At the University of Southern California, black students and alumni have recounted disturbing incidents of racial profiling at the hands of USC's Department of Public Safety. Incidents that they say highlights a pattern of bias. Sophia James is a senior at USC. She just finished a months-long investigation into racial profiling on the campus, and she's with me now. Hi, Sophia. Hi. I read your pieces, and it seems like there are a lot of incidents to pull from. But just to set things up here, tell me a little bit about how black students on your campus have experienced racial profiling at the hands of the Department of Public Safety. What are the complaints that you've heard? I think the most common way students have experienced profiling is by these identification checks. Hmm. USC is a closed campus, um, which means that after 9 p.m. every night, um, students have to show identification to get into campus. There are usually DPS officers and other security officers patrolling slightly before the time that students are required to show their identification. And that's when a lot of these stops happen. So students will come in with a group of their friends and one black student will be stopped and asked for identification before the cutoff time, but all the other students will be free to pass. Also, USC just has generally a lot of uh, DPS officers patrolling the area. And so those officers often stop and check students who they deem quote unquote suspicious. And they, they'll ask them for identification or ask them what they're doing on campus. And a lot of times those happen to be black students. And it's worth mentioning these DPS officers, they're not like security guards. They actually have some pretty close ties to the LAPD, right? The Department of Public Safety at USC essentially has this memorandum of understanding with the LAPD, which gives them full control and power to police in the same way that LAPD does in a one mile, one square mile radius around campus. Um, so they basically, they have the power to make arrests and they have the power to check in on students and to sort of do all these policing functions that LAPD does. So they're not just some sort of like campus security force that's just on the lookout. They actually have policing power. So to add to the more stories, this summer, an Instagram account called Black at USC, that's Black underscore at underscore USC, began highlighting Black students' experiences with racism on the campus. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was shared there? 
Yeah, so this account had a whole bunch of different experiences ranging from professors engaging in racism and discrimination to DPS officers and profiling. There are tons and tons of incidents on this page just sort of highlighting this culture of racism and racial profiling at USC, especially at the hands of DPS officers. There's a bunch of really disturbing stories. One of the most disturbing, I thought, was a, a student who was called several slurs by a DPS officer when they were walking home late at night. Hmm. Um, and that's just sort of reflective of an institution that doesn't care for the safety and well-being of all their students. Well, I know that some of these have been reported to you. I'm wondering, because at this point, they're allegations, but have they ever gone higher up the chain? Have they been reported to the university? Has the university admitted to any of these things? So that's the university hasn't directly taken accountability for a lot of this. Um, there is a, uh, a complaint process through which students can report a DPS officer if they feel the officer has been engaging in some sort of profiling or discrimination. Um, this process was really, really unclear um, up until, I think, this summer. So they have a website on DPS's website. You can go and there's a tab that says give feedback. And up until, I think, August of this year, the only instructions listed for reporting a DPS officer was reporting them to their sergeant or their command, which is, you can imagine, if a student is, is experiencing racial profiling and discrimination by a DPS officer, they're probably not going to want to talk to another DPS officer about that. You mm. already inherently don't trust the whole group of people because of that. They've since clarified this this on their website, I think, because I bothered them about it so much. I, I asked them so many questions about that. And now they have a sort of more detailed process, which you go through the Office of Equity and Diversity and Title IX, and you file a Title IX complaint. But it's still very, I don't think this whole process is not clearly publicized to all students. So many of the students that I spoke to didn't even know that reporting a DPS officer was an option. USC has met with student leaders in the past about issues with racial profiling, Sophia, and there have already been town halls and task forces I think I know the answer to this one already, but do students that you've talked to think that this time will be different? I think it's it's a pretty mixed bag, but for the most part, students don't have a lot of faith in the system of town halls and advisory boards and listen-in sessions because in the past, they haven't really done anything to change or to make any sort of tangible change. Um, Carol Fult this year in August announced that she's reforming two of the boards, the Council of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion and the Community Advisory Board. And the Community Advisory Board is supposed to specifically serve as oversight for DPS and give them suggestions on sort of how to improve their relationship with the community and with students. I'm talking to Sophia James. She's a senior at USC, and she's been writing about reports of racial profiling by the Department of Public Safety. And you mentioned USC's new president, Carol Folt, just a second ago. And I'm really wondering, based off of the students that you've spoken to, do you get a sense that they think that she intends to make real changes? I think there is more hope than before with our previous administrations and, and previous leadership at USC that Carol Folt will sort of take the effort and make a tangible change. But it is really hard to know right now because all she has done is created these advisory boards and she hasn't actually put any sort of like tangible 
action items into place. You know, part of what we do as journalists, Sophia, is we hope that we can make a positive change as a result of the reporting that we do. And you mentioned one change that's come about already just through your reporting of this story. I'm wondering how the Department of Public Safety, as well as the university administration, responded to your inquiries. Yeah, so they were, the Department of Public Safety and the university were quite open and receptive to taking my questions. DPS Chief John Thomas, he is really committed to listening to students and committed to hearing out students in in their experiences. And he was really sort of very open to talking to me about the, the flaws and the issues within the Department of Public Safety and how DPS is internally trying to fix those. Well, Sophia, I read your piece. I printed it out. It came out to about 24 pages. And so I know that you're kind of an expert on this topic. And I'm wondering, based off of the conversations that you've had with students and your own personal research, what would you do and what would they do to address the issues within DPS? Would there be a staffing change? What essentially do you think needs to happen for change to take place? I think first and foremost, the administration needs to listen to the students who are have been saying that they've been experiencing racial profiling and discrimination for years. The creation of more listening sessions or town halls is sort of redundant when these students have already been saying this is an issue. I think mm. the administration needs to listen to them and believe what they are saying as a valid and true experience. Um, and I think... As far as reform, it is very difficult because I think if there have been calls to completely defund and abolish DPS, um, which causes its own host of problems because then LAPD will just have complete jurisdiction over the USC area. And I think that could come with even more problems um, because LAPD is much bigger and harder to um, get to the root of these issues than a smaller police force like DPS. So I think if administration listens to their students, I think they can like sort of minimize the power of DPS by outsourcing a lot of DPS's duties to other forces and other institutions within the university. Sophia James is a senior at USC. She just finished a months-long investigation into racial profiling on campus. That's an investigation that you can read about on our website, laist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Sophia, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Is Masa going to sell us tomorrow? Yes, yes, yes. Yesterday, St. Mary's College in Maryland held a virtual commemoration, unveiling a unique memorial recognizing its role in the history of slavery, entitled From Absence to Presence, the Commemorative to Enslaved Peoples of Southern Maryland. The college is the latest of several institutions to confront and reconcile with a legacy of slavery. The unveiling at St. Mary's capped a years-long journey that began with an archaeological discovery on the campus grounds. NewsHour Weekend's Yvette Feliciano has more. So what was your initial reaction when you found out that archaeologists had uncovered slave artifacts on the college grounds? It gave me pause, actually. The college is located in southern Maryland, which has a history of slavery, But in my mind, I had hoped, or in my heart, I had hoped that we would not have been engaged in that at all. Tawanda Jordan is the president of St. Mary's College of Maryland. Early in her tenure, college began surveying the campus grounds in preparation for a new stadium complex. In 2016, 
School archaeologists uncovered evidence of lives once lived on the same grounds that students walk on today. There were 18th and 19th century ceramics, tobacco pipes, and bricks and nails that suggest slave quarters once stood on this very site. It didn't make me feel very happy, but it was important that we recognize that. The stadium site was relocated. In its place would be an installation commemorating the lives of enslaved people who toiled on this land long before and even after the founding of the college in 1840. Where we're located, the community is focused on how the world was from the perspective of the colonists. But an important aspect that was missing from my point of view was the representation from the enslaved people. And they did not have a voice. And this gave an opportunity to present the history of the region from a different perspective. In October of this year, work began on the installation. There are no statues, no paintings. So we're really kind of interested in this idea of slave quarters being a very powerful metaphor. Architects Norman Lee, Shane Albatron, along with poet Quentin Baker, collaborated on the project. Angela Davis um, has a very powerful quote um, uh, talking about how slave quarters were really the only place where slaves could kind of exist and um, kind of be human in the sense that they were able to uh, remove themselves from the gaze of slave owners. So at the same time, they were, uh, you know, they were essentially in a prison. The, the slave quarters themselves were, were kind of a symbol of empowerment because they could actually live their private lives. The designers called historical documents, 18th and 19th century slave folklore, and site-specific archaeological artifacts to present a history that still remains incomplete. The structure is made of wooden slats and reflective stainless steel etched with the poetry of Quentin Baker. Because of the reflection of the sculpture, it becomes an immersive experience in that the viewer is injected into the storyline through that reflection. Nothing resonates with people more in the visual arts than, than the human form. And, and here we are making the viewer that human form, uh, which forces them to pay attention and forces confrontation between the past and the present. For his part in the project, Baker used language of runaway slave ads from St. Mary's County. Those words became the poetry etched into the steel. It's an unthinkable reality to live your life as property. And so what I hope the language does is that it brings forth the reality of people as property and the reality of the interiority of individuals who live through this, who still loved and cared and laughed and hurt and bled and broke um, and existed in a reality of non-existence. That's uh, an impossible thing to think about and an impossible thing to consider, but that was also what happened. St. Mary's College is not the only institution coming to terms with its legacy of slavery. In addition to a number of other steps, Georgetown University now offers preferential admission to descendants of enslaved people held by the university. The University of Virginia created a consortium of schools to research and address their historical ties perpetuating slavery. This is a moment right now where a lot of higher ed institutions are trying to grapple with their legacies of slavery. Do you feel there's an appropriate way to memorialize this history? I don't think there's one way by which to memorialize the history. Everyone has to do what feels right to them. I think the, there's an improper way to do it, and that is 
to not to tell the full story. Some might say the journey to this commemorative has been a passion project for St. Mary's College of Maryland. Students were engaged in the archaeological dig. There are courses and special projects exploring this period of slavery. And the community helped decide who would design the art installation. Jordan sees pursuing this history as a duty of a higher education institution. When you tell the history of a place, and of course, as life evolves, perspectives change, but they don't change as much when you are inclusive in the telling of that history and you lend voice to those who have been silenced in the past. And that this commemorative lends voice to the enslaved people and that should set us on the path to do better in this country. To hear the poetry read by Quentin Baker at yesterday's unveiling, visit pbs.org slash newshour. She's my friends, but I'm in France. <laughs> I'm just saying. French politics editor Mark Perlman joins me now in the studio with more. And Mark, uh, President Macron says he's shocked by those images, and so are most people in France. Uh, this looks like a, a, a brutal and completely unprovoked attack on a citizen. Yes, uh, some are already describe it, describing it sorry, as uh, France's George Floyd moment in reference uh, to uh, the beating and death of uh, a black American a few months ago that sparked riots and months of uh, very, very nasty uh, debates. And so clearly the issue of police brutality is now front and center. It's very rare to have the uh, president issue a statement on one particular incident he generally he talks about uh, big items and, and so on, say that he was uh, very shocked. Uh, we hear that the police officers are, are now in custody and internal investigation has been opened. So there's a willingness uh, by the president, by the government, especially by the interior minister who is under fire, uh, to uh, calm the situation and really uh, try to change uh, the dynamics. Because as uh, you pointed out, there was also this incident just a few days ago Ago, uh, with a migrant uh, camp, and uh, we saw again images of police brutality, not the same brutality that we've seen in those shocking images we just uh, saw, but clearly uh, there is a problem with the interior ministers. Now, not the first time in French uh, history uh, there is this notion uh, that the police is given a license uh, to go after demonstrators on the, when it was the Yellow Vest incident. At the same time, the police is asked to make sure people uh, stay at home under the lockdown rule. The police is asked uh, to fight terrorism. So there's a lot of uh, pressure, and the government wants to reassure the police, tell them, uh, yes, we're behind you, but at the same time, it cannot tolerate police violence in France. And of course, um, w with mounting public anger over this kind of violence, um, the government is trying to pass a law which would uh, make it an offence to upload an image of an, a police officer if that officer can be identified. And journalists say, you know, this is just going to deter them from being able to do their job and, and to document things like this. Yes, exactly. Uh, if uh, there were no cameras, we wouldn't be talking about those uh, two incidents, the migrant camp and especially uh, those uh, video surveillance 
surveillance cameras uh, that caught the beating of this black man just a few days ago. And so uh, there's mounting opposition uh, against an article of a broad security law, whereby essentially uh, you could not film or you would have to hide the faces of police officers because it could threaten their physical or psychological, I'm citing the proposal, integrity. And so uh, journalists are up in arms, or human rights organizations are up in arms. But more concerning for the government, many uh, party members of Emmanuel Macron's En Marche party are also uh, opposing this. The prime minister has been backtracking. He said, we'll appoint a commission of experts to discuss this issue. This is when you want to bury something, you appoint a commission of experts. And the president of the Senate, who's a conservative, Gérard Larcher, just came out and in a statement he urged the uh, prime minister to essentially pull this article out of the law because it was causing too much controversy when you have uh, the coincidence, uh, this uh, combustible mix of police violence being documented by cameras, and at the same time you say, we don't want to see this anymore because it will become a crime, it's virtually impossible for the government to hold on. I can tell you they're going to drop uh, this article of law or change it substantially because it will not be accepted by the French but also uh, by Emmanuel Macron's party. The party tends to really uh, be very uh, obedient uh, with Emmanuel Macron, but not this time around. All right, Mark, thanks very much indeed. Mark Proudman there. Shopping was a family affair. The cousins and siblings. And Powell's grandmother, nicknamed Chip, fed her sprawling crew of family and friends. Man, Chip could cook her butt off, man. She could... One by one, the store shut down. Meanwhile, poor diet is one of the big reasons more black and Latino people are dying of COVID-19 here and nationally. For people to constantly die in my neighborhood every day, and a lot of that have to relate to the diet that they have, is not okay. Powell says the community's expectations about food and healthy eating in general are shaped by paltry local options. She lobbied chain stores to stock more fruits and vegetables like they do in suburban stores. They didn't. Steve Belton explains why. Belton is president and CEO of Urban League Twin Cities. It becomes a vicious cycle because you don't have the businesses there. People are not able to support themselves and to live healthy lives. And there are not employment opportunities represented by those businesses. And people's health is suffering because of the absence of healthy choices. Latasha Powell got fed up. I don't have the energy or the power to fight a corporation who don't want to do right by my community. But what is the alternative way that we can get what we need for the people that live here in this community? That alternative way, for now, brings us back to those gardens and Princess Haley, the woman whose son died on the 4th of July 10 years ago. Tasha, where's cucumbers? Haley has brought local students, including her 15-year-old, to help harvest produce. Her daughter, Princess Anne, complains of hunger. Find something in the garden. What? I want a granola bar and some fruit. Mama, I don't like tomatoes. Just taste it. You don't like store-bought tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes in general. Haley ignores her and gently hugs a plant. My babies. Okra. Okra, she says, healed her arthritic knees. I'm like drinking okra water a whole year. Both of these are still my knees. Amen, amen. The garden soothes the deeper pain from losing her son, too. It resurfaces with every shooting. Having that happen so often takes me back to the 4th of July. Yet she keeps coming back. The meaning of the name George 
and I am talking about George Floyd. His name means the farmer. His name represents the land. Haley says some friends say gardening feels too reminiscent of slavery. It's the opposite, she tells them. It's a source of justice. When grocery shelves are bare, gardens feed you. Then they become concerned about the soil, the air, and the water. Once that individual makes that change, then their social circle changes. Their children make different decisions. Their friends want to know, girl, what's that in that pot? One of her converts is 17-year-old Carl Childs, who's plucking fronds of dino kale. This noise right here, you know it's like fresh and you know. Childs discovered a love of snap peas, working after school with Appetite for Change. He says supplying produce to neighbors without access to it feels powerful. Local fresh food to eat, so like it's really important. And I love it. I love the feeling, giving back to the community. Haley's daughter, Princess Anne, watches Childs eat a speckled tomato. It looks like the one she told her mother she hated. It's a tomato. Okay, this is good. This is good. We used to grow a lot of carrots. With her mother out of earshot, she raves about those carrots. I ate purple carrots, green carrots, yellow carrots, straight out the ground. Those are the best foods ever. And that's how the convert becomes the preacher. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News, North Minneapolis. Boss of the Australian airline Qantas has raised the possibility of coronavirus vaccinations becoming mandatory for international travellers. It could help revive an industry that's lost tens of billions of dollars because of the pandemic, as our business reporter Jonathan Josephs explains. The coronavirus pandemic has meant far fewer planes in our skies. Government restrictions to tackle the virus, as well as a collapse in passenger confidence, mean the airline trade body IATA thinks the number of commercial flights this year will be just a third of what it was last year. That's led to widespread job cuts and left airline finances in tatters, with many backing coronavirus testing as a way to get us travelling again. But with the prospect of a vaccine on the horizon, the Qantas chief executive Alan Joyce told A Current Affair on Australia's Channel 9 that they could become mandatory. We are looking at changing our terms and conditions to say for international travellers uh, that we will ask people to have a vaccination before they can get on the aircraft. Mr Joyce went on to say conversations with colleagues at other airlines around the world led him to believe it was going to be a common thing. IATA says it's not involved in any such plan, but is looking into a digital health pass, probably in the form of a smartphone app, to help airline passengers securely share test and vaccine certificates as they travel. For Qantas, that could help restart the international flights it stopped in March. Jonathan Josephs. And this is for you too, Gus. Um, are you going to take this vaccination? There are now three promising COVID-19 vaccines on the horizon, and the first Americans to receive one could get it as soon as mid-December. So now the case is being made for people to get comfortable taking them. Ernest Grant is one of the top-ranking nurses in the country. He leads the American Nurses Association. He's also participating in one of the vaccine trials. He says it's important that people of color participate in trials to improve accuracy and to build trust. I think there's a well-documented history of 
Blacks being used in experiments. So even today, there's still, you know, hesitancy to participate, you know, and usually it is based on those prior experiences. Grant believes the history of distrust has to be acknowledged and reshaped. And for him, that has to begin with those on the front lines. First of all, nurses need to educate themselves so that they have the most accurate and up-to-date information. Being able to just, you know, sit down and answer questions or concerns that uh, members of the uh, the public may have. And I think also having uh, people in authoritative positions, such as maybe uh, a pastor or Black doctors and nurses, uh, actually seeing them take the injection. Those are some of the ways that we can help to convince communities of color that you know, they really need to uh, not have a fear of these vaccines. I mean, is it possible for experimental vaccines to to have different effects depending on race or ethnicity, or or is that is that just a, a myth? No, it, it is possible, and that's one of the reasons why, with the clinical trials, that there is a need to seek out a variety of volunteers because everybody's body is different, and as they you know, began to participate in the trials, we're able to pick up on those little things and, and know that, you know, okay, so what are some of the common side effects or are there side effects that we may see in one particular uh, ethnicity over another? And that's why it's so important that we get a whole rainbow of colors of people, if you will, to participate in these trials so that uh, we can say that we know for certain in communities of color that these vaccines are just as effective as they are in the, the white population. Hmm. It, it feels really important to underscore this. I mean, one reason you have decided to take part in, in a trial yourself is, as I think you said, to be a role model and to show <laughs> that that it is safe and okay if if you are a person of color to, to do this. But <laughs> in addition, I mean, you're saying there's a real risk if you don't have a diverse enough population in these clinical trials, I mean, the, the results could be misleading and, and you might not catch some potential risks. Absolutely. And it could also further some of the misconceptions that people may have. Oh, well, they only tried it on white people. So, uh, well, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but uh, that could certainly be that. And again, just trying to educate the public that there are guidelines, there's ethical standards, there's a review board, and we have to trust science. We've seen some companies obviously moving along in the process, and, and there's been you know some reason for optimism. Uh, from what you've seen so far, are you confident that there's a diverse enough population being tested that, that you'll have faith in results? Certainly. I, I think between both the Pfizer and the uh, Moderna, the numbers that I'm hearing of people of color that they had in their clinical trials, yes, I, I think that is enough to, uh, to go forward and uh, begin to administer the, uh, the vaccine. Obviously, we got news of AstraZeneca. I know their clinical trial is still open, and they're still looking for uh, particularly people of color to uh, participate. But uh, yes, based on the numbers of Pfizer and Moderna, I believe that there is uh, enough Black and uh, people of color participation that we can move forward and say that this is safe. So what's the experience been like for you being part of, of one of these early trials? Well, you know, I was thinking about it a couple of days before I got asked to participate. I saw that as a sign of, uh, okay, <laughs> you know, go ahead and, uh, and, and do it. Uh, it's, it's been fine. I just had literally just a, uh, about a day of just extreme fatigue and uh, chills, and that's been it. I was able to still work during that time 
and continue to uh, feel great. I mean, you can't know for sure, but do you, the fact that you felt something, does that suggest that you actually got one of the vaccines and, and not a placebo or, or at least a, have you convinced yourself of that? <laughs> well, from what I'm hearing, yes, uh, a placebo usually does not give you fatigue and uh, chills. Hearing from other people who have talked about their experiences, mine has been sort of the same. I am still in the study. Uh, I will be followed for two years. And at the end of the study is when it gets unblinded. But uh, I probably did get the, the vaccine and not the placebo. But I'm just putting all of this together and thinking this through. I mean, if this is a two-year process, that means, you know, once there are vaccines widely available, you can't go get one because that might mess up the study. I mean, let's just say, mm -hmm. in theory, you got the placebo and that these symptoms were coming from something else. I mean, there's there's like a there's a risk there, right? That you could be unvaccinated for, for a while. Yes, there is a potential risk, but uh, I still maintain contact with my clinical trials unit. I do keep a, a diary and I also have a, a number to call the clinical trial unit if I'm experiencing anything that resembles the signs and symptoms of COVID and will be brought in and you know examined and the next steps from there. So mm. I suppose, yes, you are right that there is that possibility, but uh, you know, so far, knock on wood, uh, that has not happened. Why is it worth the risk to you? Well, it's worth the, the risk because you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And at this rate, particularly knowing that this virus has a propensity to really proliferate through the black and brown community, I wanted to be able to do my part to contribute to that body of science that would uh, help to alleviate or at the very least uh, knock down this virus or the, the virus spread. So that's why it is so important because obviously I care about mankind and anything we can do to put this virus to rest, I'm willing to do my part. Ernest Grant uh, leads the American Nurses Association. He's also taking part in one of the vaccine trials. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, thanks for all the work you and other nurses have been doing for all of us in our country. Thank you. Medical Apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times. A public to the health announcement, which you can see online, describes itself as a love letter to black America. Dear Black America, we love you. We affirm that black lives matter. On the screen, you see images of black doctors and nurses and other medical workers. The YouTube video comes from the Black Coalition Against COVID-19. Doctors and nurses, leaders of academic institutions. Dr. Reed Tuxen is the former health commissioner of Washington, D.C. One of the things that we have noticed about the response to this uh, COVID pandemic has been the level of mistrust and, uh, and misinformation that has plagued uh, the response to this virus. As a result of that distrust and misinformation, there is a reluctance on the part of many Americans, but particularly Americans of color, to follow the guidance uh, that has been offered and also a very great reluctance to be willing to participate in the clinical trial for the vaccine and for accepting a vaccine once safe and proven. So what we are trying to do with this effort is to speak directly to this fundamental issue of distrust and misinformation uh, that results in, uh, unfortunately, premature death and preventable misery and suffering. 
Let's think that through because, as you know very well, distrust of experts is a universal issue today. Distrust of science, distrust of doctors, and particularly distrust of vaccines. Every kind of person may exhibit that behavior. But what particularly seems to be happening in communities of color? One of the things that I had the chance to do in my career was uh, to be the Commissioner of Public Health in the District of Columbia during the height of the HIV epidemic. And there, uh, we found that it was extremely difficult to break through the legacy of the Tuskegee syphilis experience and other significant insults that had made it very uh, difficult to be able to push our message through around the appropriate things to do. It is amazing to me now that in uh, 2020, so many years later, the same issues are, are rearing their head. Certainly, this is a, a, a national issue, but in the African-American community, it is a particularly exacerbated issue because of things like the Tuskegee experience and combined with efforts that have resulted in the need for thousands and thousands of people of color to walk into the, their city streets and declare that their lives matter. When you have that level of anxiety, that causes a significant problem in healthcare. When you're talking about people saying Black Lives Matter, of course, that's a reference to policing. When you say the Tuskegee experience, will you describe that for people for whom maybe that's just a, just a name? Back in the 1930s, uh, there was a trial that evaluated what will happen if you inject uh, syphilis into human beings and then decide not to treat them, but just follow along and see what the course of the events would occur. Even though there was a treatment, these uh, victims were unable to access that. And there was simply was a watching as these people became ill, sickened, and died. This legacy is so outrageous that it has remained prominent, unfortunately, even today. And that is the kind of symbolic issue combined with other elements in the society that have caused uh, too many people of color to be distrustful of uh, the vaccine process, the clinical trials process, and as a result, their health will suffer and we will pay the consequences. It is important then that we decide, and we as black health professionals have definitely taken this on as our calling, as a part of our duty to address this climate of distrust, to address this misinformation that is killing our people, and to be able to say to them, we love you, we care about you, you can trust us. We have not only the expertise, but the love, caring, and respect for you that leads to uh, giving you the information you need so that you can make the appropriate personal health and behavior choices for yourself and your family. I noticed in watching this public service announcement, this love letter to black America, it is one black face after another. It is African-Americans in scrubs, doctors, nurses, other medical professionals. That is true. And I think that the reason is, is that I think too few people in the black community realize, first of all, that how many African-Americans are in leadership positions who are in positions of authority and power to be able to make sure that something like Tuskegee could never happen again. So that the head of the National Heart and Lung Blood Institute at the NIH is an African-American man. One of the people that is doing the most important basic science about the vaccine in Tony Fauci's lab is an African-American woman. And there are also black physicians who are involved very intimately in the review process uh, at the FDA prior to the making a final decision on safety and efficacy. So we are trying to absolutely let our community understand that we are inside of the tent, watching everything very carefully, protecting their interests and assuring them that only the best science is being applied to the decisions that will affect their life. Dr. Reed Tuxen, thanks so much. 
Thank you very much. He's one of the organizers of the Black Coalition Against COVID-19. White supremacy is the sickness. Healthcare workers will be among the first to be offered COVID-19 vaccines. They're meant to protect healthcare workers and their patients and to serve as a signal to the public. But some doctors and nurses are skeptical and reluctant. NPR's Ping Huang reports. Dr. Keita Thompson is a family physician in El Paso, Texas. It's a city in the middle of a huge surge right now. The only way to probably really stop that spread is to have a decent amount of the population be vaccinated. But for the ones of us who are asking questions, there are just a lot of questions. Just a lot. Dr. Thompson is a big fan of vaccines in general. But the fact that COVID-19 vaccines have come together so quickly and that the government says they'll be free can sound a little too good to be true. Fast and free, that just doesn't equate. Nothing in this world is that. And until she gets her questions about COVID vaccines answered, she's skeptical and not ready to get one. Doctors like Thompson, along with nurses, aides, and other healthcare workers, are expected to be the first priority group to be offered a COVID vaccine when one is authorized, and they're under pressure to get it. Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, an infectious disease specialist at Stanford, says it's an important group to get vaccinated. We want to be sure that our healthcare workers are safe so that they can protect their patients from disease and that they can be protected and do their work. They're also big influencers on their patients. But enough healthcare workers are expressing concerns and anxiety about getting COVID vaccines that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says addressing hesitancy in this group is a top priority. Dr. Anuj Mehta, a member of Colorado's Emergency Response Committee, says it's not a group they had expected to need convincing. We initially did not think it would be such an issue with healthcare workers. And then obviously the process has been politicized a lot lately. And so we're seeing growing amounts of vaccine hesitancy. Michelle Mahan is a registered nurse representing National Nurses United. It's a union with more than 150,000 members across the country. She says the way the pandemic has played out has not been reassuring to healthcare workers who feel exhausted and underprotected. This is the same population that was told earlier this year that they should just go battle uh, COVID-19 wearing a bandana or a scarf. Mahan says they want to see clear data on safety and efficacy before they sign on to get a brand new vaccine. That's what Dr. Thompson wants, too. She reads the New England Journal of Medicine and follows vaccine news closely. And she says a lot of facts just aren't available yet. I would still need convincing legitimately still need convincing. Yeah. As a doctor, she's worried about side effects. For her hospital and her patients, she's worried about costs. But Thompson says she can be swayed. If companies release trial data, she'll judge for herself whether a vaccine is safe. If her doctor friends choose to get the vaccine, that could convince her too. And even though she's wary of government officials, she does believe in at least one top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci. I trust him. He's so cute. I trust him and I trust what he says. And he's shown that he's able to actually stand on his own two feet during this whole thing without being swayed. That's what Thompson is trying to do, too. She's going to look at the facts and make up her own mind. Once she's convinced, she'll be able to make the case to her patients. She's already been telling them to wear masks nonstop. Ping Huang, NPR News. Right now, life is a point sayer. At times, I'm a studio conveyor. Mr. D-
Dinkins. I want to play a few clips of Mayor David Dinkins on this show. Mayor Dinkins, who has now died at age 93 and who was elected in 1989. And for the 20th anniversary of that in 2009, Mayor Dinkins was a guest on this show, and I asked him this question. Looking back, why was 1989 the right time for you to run for mayor and for the city to elect an African-American for the first time? Well, first, uh, I have to uh, quickly point out that uh, I was never, uh, I never felt that, gee, I can't wait to become mayor. Uh, I ran three times for Manhattan Borough President before I succeeded. Indeed, people would say to me, what do you do? And I'd say, I run for Borough President. <laughs> and then when I finally succeeded in uh, 1985, um, the uh, and People were, had become dissatisfied with Ed Koch. Uh, keep in mind that I and Sutton, who had run in 77, and a lot of us, Basil Patterson, uh, who became a deputy mayor with Ed, uh, we, we were all for Koch against Cuomo in a runoff in 1977. But there came a time when we were less than satisfied and there was a, a search for somebody to run against uh, Ed Koch. And I don't want it to sound like I was drafted, but I did have a judgment to make. After running three times for Manhattan Borough President, uh, I going to put it all on the line, and if I lost, I'd have zero. Here in 2009, now you've probably been hearing or reading in the obituaries or some of you, if you were around then, you remember how his legacy has usually been tied to the Crown Heights riots of 1991 before all other things. So in that same 2009 interview, I asked him this. How would you like your mayoralty to be remembered? Well, I often say that that the New York Times, which, as you know, has uh, partial obits on public figures, and given my age, I'm confident that they have one on me. And the opening graph will read uh, David N. Dinkins, born July 10th, 1927, in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, first black mayor of the city of New York, and then immediately Crown Heights. And uh, they are not apt to talk about the fact that we kept libraries open six days a week, uh, when we had little money, spent $47 million to do so, when this had not occurred in a quarter century. And uh, there would be mention of Crown Heights. So Mayor Dinkins here in 2009, just for the record, he predicted in that answer what the first graph of his New York Times obit would be 11 years ago. Well, here it is. Mr. Dinkins, who served in the early 1990s, was seen as a compromise selection for voters weary of racial unrest, crime, and fiscal turmoil. The racial harmony he sought remained elusive during his years in office. Uh, so that's, uh, that's the beginning of that. That's actually sort of the subhead. So I'll go to the actual first paragraph. David N. Dinkins, a barber's son who became New York City's first black mayor on the wings of racial harmony, but who was turned out by voters after one term over his handling of racial violence in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, 
so Dinkins predicted correctly, died on Monday night at his home on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He was 93. Um, If we're going to think about Mayor Dinkins' place in history, it helps to step back and remember the big picture of the city and the country in those days that in certain ways lead right to where we are today. Crime was high, but it had been going up for decades. It had gone up and up and up on Mayor Ed Koch's watch for three terms, as it had in cities around the country, and yet people didn't hold him personally responsible for it in the way I believe they held Mayor Dinkins for it, perhaps because of his race. Dinkins inherited that crime rate and became the first of three mayors to hire William Bratton to be a police leader, and crime started to go down on Dinkins' watch. Racial tensions were also high, of course. Ed Koch, like Giuliani later, and again, this put so, gets put so much on Dinkins in some of these stories. Um, but Koch, like Giuliani after Dinkins, was a very polarizing figure along racial lines, especially in his later years as mayor. He had had a lot of black support, as Mayor Dinkins recalled in that clip, but he had lost much of it. And the city and the country were both in a big recession. Mayor Dinkins in that clip refers to expanding the library hours despite the city's budget woes of the time, and that was true nationally, too, the budget woes. Remember Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign mantra, which exists to this day. People cite him saying, it's the economy, stupid, because it was a very down economy nationally at the end of the 80s, start of the 90s, and a high crime period nationally, and voters took it out on George H.W. Bush when he became a one-term president and got defeated in 92, and on David Dinkins when he got defeated and became a one-term mayor in 93. And then came the federal crime bill in 94 that we're still debating today as a federal government driver of mass incarceration exactly as Giuliani was starting out as mayor, centering his get-tough-on-crime policies. And meanwhile, the economic rebound was taking place in both places as well, nationally, as the cycle kicked back up, and in New York. So one way to look at that period is Dinkins and the first President Bush got blamed, both of them, for national trends, even though they were from different parties. Clinton and Giuliani got credit for the rebound even though they were, and of course it's more complicated than that too, but that's one take on David Dinkins' mayoralty in context. Now, tomorrow, folks, we'll do a deeper remembrance of Mayor David Dinkins. We're calling up some people who we think will be worthy guests, and we'll do a major segment that we can put together uh, better on a day's notice. So for today, those clips and those thoughts, and Mayor David Dinkins, rest in peace. There we go. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, November 28, 2020. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts questions observations the number 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND 
press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 716, excuse me, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Many things to share before we get to the callers. Uh, Rest in peace to former mayor of New York City, David Dinkins. Has been a tough year. Lots and lots of losses. Wowee. Uh, Let's see. So much more. We'll have more to say about Mayor Dinkins as we proceed and even the rest of the year in terms of uh, racism, white supremacy and his term uh, in office, even how people think about his time uh, in office. Wow. Uh, That the clips that we just heard, it was difficult for me to even listen for a variety of reasons, which doesn't happen very often, if ever. For the compensatory call-in, I put the clips together, but wow, it was difficult to uh, listen to. I almost wish we could have had some different things leading up to, oh, Mayor Dinkins passed away this week so we could, you know, that my energy could be in a better spot to receive that and just be there for that. But there was so much, wow, how shall I say, uh, painful, illogic. Uh, 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 just a consistent absence of logic uh, and or outright deception at times Uh, lack of logic lots of of illogical things said before we got to that report Uh, I will start with the vaccines they had we had several reports because there were so many reports this week not just talking about the vaccines uh, and their potential aid to, you know, solving this crisis with the Rona and all, but specifically with black people are hesitant about taking the vaccine. Black people, we need to get them involved in the trials. All of that. As soon as I saw the reports, uh, I was suspicious. I was going to use the metaphor red flag. I had tremendous concerns as soon as I saw the reports. I hadn't heard them. I hadn't read them just. And it was reports, plural. Many of these over the uh, over the week, over the past five or six days, five or six days. One source of concern was I have not seen any reports. And I mean, not one since the Rona crisis began way back in the spring, been almost a full calendar year now, I've not seen one report that says, man, white people are really defensive about this here vaccine. Like, man, what are we going to do? We're going to have to coax white people. I've not seen one that has said that specifically. Like the only thing that's even been close, they had a report in CNN. Uh, I read it. Uh, on the program a couple weeks back and I linked it in the program for this week that said uh, the 
coronavirus rates in Mississippi are rising because white people are not wearing masks and following the regulations as opposed to black people who are following the regulations. And it seems like the rate is dropping with black people. And this uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically the title of the article. And then it gave a lot more detail about all of what I just said, but this was for uh, Mississippi specifically. Right. But I haven't seen any reports and that's not even what I said. Right. I'm just saying that's as close. That's like what they call ballpark. But I've not seen anything that said, hey, what are we going to do to get white people to take these vaccines? What are we going to do? This is serious. Not one just over the past. It's not even been a full week. And it's a plethora of reports. Oh, man. Black people don't want to take the virus. Oh, man. What are we going to do? We got to get campaigns together to convince the Negro to take the virus. Okay, so that's one. And I make sure that I'm not a medical professional. Just following logic with my observations, we've been trying to be mindful about the COVID-19 situation, paying attention to what's happening. So that's one. Then when I start actually investigating some of these reports. So one of the reports that we heard Uh, Coalition urges black communities, black communities to embrace COVID-19 vaccine embrace. What do you mean? Are we giving out hugs embrace? So and this was from NPR, November 26. So words are important. We say that every week, right? Been saying that since the inception of the cows creeping on a decade since we returned to the air. So words are important. So they have this fella, a uh, victim of white supremacy. Dr. Reed Tuxen uh, is the guest on NPR for this segment victim. Uh, and so he's, you know, physician and has worked as former health commissioner of DC and they give all his accolades and such. Uh, and so he does the standard uh, when they talk about uh, black people and, you know, their misgivings. And he says, Uh, Certainly, this is a national issue, but in the African-American community, that word again, it is a particularly exacerbated issue because of things like the Tuskegee experience and combined with efforts that have resulted in a need for thousands and thousands of people of color to walk in their streets and declare black lives that their lives matter. Right. So he gives he gives that. Now, one, I started that segment with uh, the title for Harriet Washington's medical apartheid. She has a segment in her book where she says specifically it's way beyond the Tuskegee experiment. And that was something that stopped me as well. I, it caught my attention. The host, Steve Inskeep, when he asked Dr. Tuxen to when you say the Tuskegee experience and I said, why are they saying experience? And so I had to go look at the transcript and Dr. Tuxen, he didn't just say it once. He said it twice, calling it the Tuskegee experience. I've heard the word experiment a lot this year. So white people are all right with you saying the word experiment on national public radio things like that when I already have suspicion about this where no doctor T- and it's again like this is another one where I give my pause like really am I more informed about this than Dr. Tuxen 
that can't be the case. It's not the Tuskegee experience like we're talking about a ride or like with the, the Negro experience. What are we even talking? No, no, no. Experiment. The race soldiers in Alabama were experimenting on black people. And in fact, I go to medical apartheid because I quote that book all the time. It says in my top 10, that's in our archives for the book club, right? So this is something you can go back and check out. It's in its entirety, which I would encourage everyone to do. What's one piece of great information in medical apartheid? Let's see what Harriet A. Washington has to say in my top 10. The Office for Protection from Research Risks. OPRR has been busily investigating abuses at more than 60 research centers, including experimentation related deaths at premier universities from Columbia to California. Another important subset of human subject abuse has been scientific fraud, wherein scientists from the University of South Carolina to MIT have also been found to have lied through falsified data or fictitious research agendas, often in the service of research that abused black Americans. Within recent years, the OPRR has also suspended research at such revered universities as Alabama, Pennsylvania, Duke, Yale, and even Johns Hopkins. Henrietta Lacks. Many studies enrolled only or principally African-Americans, although some included a smattering of Hispanics. Some research studies specifically excluded white subjects according to the terms of their official protocols, the federally required plans that detail how research studies are conducted. However, in other human medical experiments, the recruitment of blacks and the poor is a tacit feature of the study because they recruit subjects from heavily black inner city areas that tend to surround American teaching hospitals. American university research centers have historically been located in inner city areas and accordingly a disproportionate number of these abuses have involved experiments with African Americans. These subjects were given experimental vaccines known to have unacceptably high lethality, were enrolled in experiments without their consent or knowledge, were subjected to surreptitious surgical and medical procedures while unconscious, injected with toxic substances, deliberately monitored rather than treated for deadly ailments excluded from life-saving treatments or secretly farmed for Sarah or tissues that were used to perfect technologies such as infectious disease tests. A few African-American medical institutions have suffered their own run-ins with federal oversight agencies concerned about how they are treated their own research subjects. I will stop there. This book is number one. It's in my top 10 again, but this book has 15 chapters. The Tuskegee experiment, not experience is one chapter of 15. That's why 
Well, that could be one part of the reason why black people are hesitant. Now, I don't know what white people and again, the context, I don't know what white people's excuse is for why so many white people have been saying since April, they're not going to take a vaccine. Even when you heard the healthcare workers, I even had a pause because we had uh, Cleo Monago on the program. Uh, he's been on the program several times. You can go back in the archives. He did the broadcast with Neely Fuller Jr. where We talked about white supremacy and so-called homosexuality. But his refrain on any platform seems to be and has been for years that you can't have a logical conversation with black people about homosexuality uh, and generally it is or not generally every time it is the people that are not logical are the black people who are opposed to or not accepting of so-called homosexual behavior they are the ones who are not logical but with the vaccine it is White people, when they played the segment about the healthcare workers and their concerns, I want to make sure there are no side effects. How do I know? <laughs> Legitimate concerns they get presented with with black people. It's man, we've been having this conversation for 20 years. I went in to talk about HIV all those years back, and now we got to go in with the exact same concerns. Oh my goodness, the woolly head negras. Like, <laughs> again, medical apartheid. It could just be. Harriet A. Washington's research gives me pause. And then what would anybody say? Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. The Rona is serious, but yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I I would see why you will have lots of questions and we will do our best to allay your concerns. But yes, this is going to be on the up and up. This is not, you know, chapter 16 in medical apartheid. Like this is for the good of everybody. Just little things like that. Give me great, even a more additional concern. And also because I haven't seen any other groups, they didn't do black and brown people have concern about, right, the Hispanics, because even Harriet A. Washington, you heard, right, they include a, a smattering of Hispanics. They didn't say black and brown people, you know, or got, you know, lunatic suspicions uh, about their own, just black people. Let's see. Uh, let me make sure because it was quite a bit with the with the vaccines that but there were many things in the segment that bothered me, but quite a bit with the vaccines uh, that bothered me. Uh, yeah, I'll stop there with the vaccine, at least for the time being. Other things that we heard. Let's see. The segment when they talked about uh, the university in Maryland they are recognizing the history of black slaves in the state, this part of the world. Uh, and they talked about the slave quarters that the segment, they said that the slave quarters uh, where they were uh, referencing Angela Davis. And they said that the slave quarter, uh, they viewed the slave quarters as a powerful uh, metaphor uh, that the slave quarter was the place where uh, the black slaves could be free and, and get a little bit of autonomy and I that was like another point where I retched a little bit just like I thought we read Solomon Northup uh, we read 
Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, Harriet Jacobs. We've read a number of, man, Edward Baptist. The half has never been told. Like, we've read quite a few works uh, on the formal plantation era of slavery. I've never heard anything about uh, autonomy in the slave quarters. I think we've heard and read about uh, Thomas Jefferson slipping into the slave quarters to do some raping of black children, black girls, black boys, maybe everybody. That's what I've heard. That doesn't sound like uh, agency autonomy like even uh, that's what I mean like just be accurate words are important it's not the Tuskegee experience the slave quarter is not a metaphor doesn't that moron say no metaphors on the compensatory call in when people get to talking about metaphors and racism you should be very very mindful because frequently this is what you're going to get some, and I don't care if they say it was Angela Davis. I don't care. Most of the time, victims of racism, no matter what their statue, I said, no matter what their stature, the logic tends to be absent when we start metaphors using and relying on a lot of metaphors to articulate our views on white supremacy racism. I said, Dr. King, his speech, uh, I have a dream. It is rife with metaphors. Say the same thing very hard to dig out logic precision exactly what are we supposed to do exactly what is the problem we just have a lot of metaphors and particularly when the metaphors don't even lead you in an accurate way of thinking the slave quarters a metaphor for some sort of autonomy <laughs> many moments to wretch as we proceeded uh, I did not include the re- uh, this in the report, probably should have, but at least I can say it now. Uh, they had a session on CNN. I told you I hate watching CNN. If I watched CNN, I probably would have slipped this one in. Uh, but they had a segment on CNN. They were talking about uh, suspected race soldier, vice president-elect, it seems, Joe Biden. He was talking about his potential cabinet picks, and they were uh, talking about Rahm Emanuel, former mayor of Chicago. And they had a black person on CNN who was saying, oh, I don't I don't know if this is supposed to be like getting rid of a racist Donald Trump. And now we get white people who are not racist, like like Rahm Emanuel, like he was involved in that cover up of Laquan McDonald in Chicago. Like, I don't think this fella is any better. Hey, hey, well, we got to get to a commercial. Let's see what Don Lemon is up to. Thank you so much, sir. We'll talk to you. (laughs) Like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We didn't bring you. You're supposed to say good things, man. What's wrong with you in here? And yeah, we... (laughs) Come on, bring and talk about some dead Negro male. Get out of here. Get out of here. Like, uh, I thought that was fantastic on so many levels. Uh, one important because, yes, we should remember that Laquan McDonald, that did not go well. Rahm Emanuel was a big part of that. Yes, there should be some interrogation. This is not going from one racist white man to a non racist white man who is about healing and unity. I do not think that is the case at all. We are still on the plantation, slave quarters and all. Uh, next uh, oh my god speaking about I have to even pause <laughs> victims guaranteed qualified even Dr. Uh, Tuxen victims guaranteed qualified even though I mean we're just talking about accuracy uh, it's not the Tuskegee experience it's experiment 
accuracy is important. Uh, but victims guaranteed qualified VGQ. Fine. Maybe that's the way he wants to articulate it. I have to say that before I even start with this one. We read Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me. 2015. They, I was surprised that they didn't mention at all. Well, maybe I shouldn't be, but they didn't mention at all when they talked about that uh, book being uh, made into some sort of HBO viewing segment uh, that that book, they accelerated the publishing because of Dylan Storm Roos attack, maybe assassination attempt on Reverend Clementa Pinckney, state senator uh, and the other members uh, of the American Manual Parish, American Manual Episcopal Church. Uh, in Charleston, uh, they didn't include that in the NPR uh, segment. Number one, two, we read that book, and I said way back then in 2015, uh, I did not enjoy this book at all. Uh, the metaphor of dreamers, white people suspected race soldiers, uh, being t- metaphors <laughs> that that being the the theme metaphor motif in the book, presenting white people as being asleep. Uh, I said that is the same thing. The metaphors cannot lead you in an incorrect, illogical way of thinking about this problem. That's consistently what happens when we have a lot of metaphors or really (laughs) metaphor use when talking about racism, white supremacy. They had Mr. Coates on victim of white supremacy, VGQ, to discuss this adaptation. What's going on with this film? I had to get the transcript to get like exactly what he said. He says the curse of power is that the person who is in power and who enjoys privilege always knows less about the person who lives under under the weight of that privilege than the people who are actually, you know, under it. The slave always knows more about the master than the master knows about the slave. Do we think that's true? That's a concept that we've talked about on this program for years. We're not even, in my view, um, so I was reminded the entire time he was talking VGQ, but I was nauseous. And then I was reminded almost every sentence of Isabel Wilkerson's case. She does reference between the world and me and her scant bibliography section between the world and me is in there. I was reminded of that book over and over during his response. I questioned myself like, Gus, you are a coon of the week for sure for even playing this segment. And I said, oh, wait a minute. I may at least get a chance to evaluate. So it's not that bad. Uh, as he was talking, I said, wow, this is another illustration of why we do not have non-white people as guests on the program anymore. White guests only. Even since I've been saying that, we've had listeners, investors sometimes who've emailed me. Say, I know it's white guests only. But this here non-white person, and I'd say about half the time, it's been a non-white person who is married to or in some sort of sexual arrangement with a white person. We've had a lot of them as guests. Please save your keystrokes, 
If you're on, you know, your your spiffy new iPhone or if you're down on your tablet or whatever it is, uh, you could be looking up recipes, something for Nigra Friday, taking advantage of the sales. Lots of different things you could be doing, researching Mayor Dinkins, getting ready for the OJ Book Club. Lots of things. <laughs> what they, the metaphor, the boat has sailed. In fact, I would be absolutely giddy if we never had another non-white guest on the program at all. Cool and the gang. White guests only. That isn't what I said, but (laughs) hearing Mr. Coates, I would be giddy if we never had another non-white guest on the cows ever to have to sit and listen to that and oh god for 12 years we have had to sit and listen to that type of thing a lot and then I have to decide now do I think this person is way confused or are they lying to me could be a little of both because that happens too at this point I don't care pick either white guests only We get back to that. White people are not because that's the same nonsense. We keep, we keep going back. That's something else I pay attention to. The people that have seen conception, when you keep coming back to the same concept that white people are ignorant about racism, either that's true or it's not. I've told people for years, I don't claim to be informed about anything, not about, you know, great baking, great cooking, great yoga. I am not an expert on anything. I am certified about that yoga though. Uh, but I'm certainly not an expert on racism, but I have come to a conclusion. White people are not ignorant about racism. They are the experts, not ta Coates, not Isabel Wilkerson, not Gus T. Renegade. Those are not the experts on racism. You got to be classified as white to be Ph.D. expert on white supremacy racism. And that is a major part of the problem promoting the lie that non-white people, slaves, whatever you want to call it, are the experts. They know it all about racism and white people. Notice he didn't even say white people in the segment. That's why I said it reminded me of Isabel Wilkerson so much and so many victims. We can't even talk about the problem. We can't. We got to find all this buckets of words to speak around. We can't even talk. Who is this? What, what is the problem? White people. Oh, okay. That's got it. Got it. But anyway, the lie that white people are ignorant it must be a hugely important to maintaining the system of white supremacy I didn't conclude that until more recently that must be hugely important to maintain that lie that white people are ignorant about racism and conversely that non-white people are really smart and informed about racism I guess if you think you're already a genius in something you won't stop and really study it Maybe that's a part of it. I don't know, but wrong, wrong, wrong. And I say ta Coates is the fellow that I quote when we start programs with white guests only. ta uh Coates is the person who wrote white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism but rarely are they pained enough. He is the victim of racism that I quote. I just don't give the name to make it like, you know, I'm trying to attack him personally. He's a victim of racism, but that's who it is. 
And so much of it was right there uh, in the quote, because it continues. He says, I want to emphasize that sincerely, you know, to be assisted in unburdening themselves of their ignorance. You know, I think that deserves a charitable greeting. I am sympathetic to sincere people who have been or who are rather, or excuse me, I am sympathetic to sincere people who have been or who rather have inherited the burdens of power. Again, we can't even say white people. It's people who have been or who rather have inherited the burdens of power. That's very Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, taste uh, in the way that she presents it. I don't even know what you're talking about. Metaphors again. I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> Dylan Roof. Is that what we're talking about when he went? Cause that's when between the world and me was published. Was he inheriting the burdens of power at mother Emmanuel? I don't understand. Was he sleepwalk? Was he dreaming at mother Emmanuel? I don't understand. Was he ignorant at Mother Emmanuel? Because if my memory is correct, Dylan Storm Roof did like six months of recon, sat in the church parking lot, took notes, studied, visited the congregation. He was not ignorant, poorly informed about Reverend Clementa uh, Pinckney and that congregation. That's not even true. Just trying to follow logic I pay attention white people promoted Isabel Wilkerson's case white people promoted greatly between the world and me I've said for a long time white people will get behind and promote books that are not accurate they will films movies they may uh, they're making Ava DuVernay is making case into a documentary film haven't heard anybody say hey medical apartheid in the time of the Rona would be a great publication like why did the Negroes not want the vaccine like oh we could put this on Netflix we know the Negroes don't want to read why is that not a documentary maybe it's too old it was 2007 oh, okay a terrible thing to waste that would be a great one we just read that that was published in 2019 I haven't heard anything no, you can't get that. Urugu, ISIS papers? No. But Cased and Between the World and Me, two of the worst books that I've read about racism, white supremacy, they're going to be documentaries that we will all be encouraged to watch. That's how the system of white supremacy continues. They promote faulty, incorrect concepts incorrect logic he had that long segment talking about the white fella in buffalo who got pushed down that's a sincere white person like are you serious he got pushed down and that shows his sincerity to ending racism white supremacy dr cambon remember his term statistically insignificant I have no idea if that white man is alive now if he's dead I think one of our listeners pointed out some time ago it'll it'll be the white person that they point to as being against racism a sincere white ally and all that will be like the most lame impotent white person that you can imagine like can't help you tie a shoestring <laughs> and couldn't help you do nothing like that'll be the white person yes Yes, I'm with you, brother. I'm not about racism. Like, that'll be the person who is sincere about fighting against white supremacy. 
And even then, I'm doubtful. But I, we got him. We got Heather Hare, John Brown, Jane Elliott. The last thing I'll get in, I, there was a lot of laughter in the segment. Uh, lots of chuckling. I'm not saying that you can't have, you know, a snicker from time to time. I'm human. I snicker or attempt to be human. I snicker from time to time. But I mean, wow, we talked about that just and in particular where the laughter was like what was presumed to be funny when he was talking about the criticisms, which I think are totally legit of uh, suspected race soldier Robin D'Angelo. I don't even hear white people critiqued where people say, hey, I think this white person is doing something incorrect, might be practicing racism. I don't even hear that very often. So if that is happening, bravo, we should have more of that, especially any of these white people who claim in some lame manner that they are an ally or against white supremacy racism. So if that is happening to Robin D'Angelo, whoopee, I don't see anything wrong with that at all. But Mr. Coates had so much laughter there, like, oh, it's terrible. I mean, why is how much criticism is necessary? Like, I don't particularly think that's funny. Uh, a suspected racist being critiqued uh, with suspicion. I think that is totally logical, valid, given the system of white supremacy. But that's gusty. Anyway, uh, VGQ uh, to Mr. Coates. I remember I spoke with Dr. Welsing literally uh, about two weeks or so before she passed away. It was one of the last times I spoke with her and we were talking about Mr. Coates. His book had just come out and she was talking about it. She hadn't read it. And I remember I was reading her some of the highlights uh, from the book. I think I have it here. I could probably read you some of the sections that I read her. And it was some of the metaphors, some of the exact same things I just told you all. Like, man, this is not, this is kind of a lame book. And I was, she was saying like, oh, wow. Like his, his parents have been, you know, attempted counter racists and they owned a bookstore and blah, blah, blah. And she just lots of detail about he and his family and their efforts to uh, exercise black self-respect and all of that is very, very interesting. Uh, the grandcester is missed, but uh, yeah, BGQ to Tanahasi Coates. Uh, I'm sure he and his family uh, they are sincere. Uh, well, that word sincerity. Uh, they've done lots of work. They've done what they've done. He said what he said. Victims guaranteed qualified. We'll say it there. But that word sincerity was used a lot sincere white person <sighs> sincere white person hmm. yes anyway we'll chew on that uh i'm gonna say that sentence one more time and then i'll just yeah no metaphors it was it was there lots of reasons i feel like i read about 20 of the metaphors that we heard this week the curse of power is that the person who is in power and who enjoys privilege always 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 emphasized to all <laughs> always knows less about the person who lives under the weight of that privilege than the people who are actually you know under it the slave always there's a third time <laughs> the slave always knows more about the master than the master knows about the slave BGQ, uh, no metaphors for the compensatory call in. This is why exhibit a no metaphors. Let's just, 
make it plain, uh, race soldiers for a long time. Uh, they have used metaphors for deception. Uh, and a lot of their metaphors and analogies uh, will have flagrant white supremacy. We just celebrated what they call it Negro Friday. Uh, anywho, the analogies and metaphors frequently, they'll take two concepts and insist that they are identical, exactly the same. And frequently that's not so. Victims, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Gusty Renegade, we have been exposed to this deception for years. Sometimes we engage in the same behavior. We are still learning. Uh, and sometimes it's we don't have logic to articulate our views. And we substitute these analogies and what have you. Frequently, that just adds to the confusion. Uh, if we could make an effort to be precise direct with what we want to say that would be appreciated for this broadcast I will prompt about the metaphors Uh, if you need more time to articulate your thoughts select the best words that is always encouraged number again is 720-716-7 300 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, we'll get to the folks who dialed in uh, if you uh, ha- I guess if folks did any of the so-called Thanksgiving celebrations uh, even though all that should have been muted Feel free to share Uh, if, you know, folks got together. If you all just did self-care, racism came up that they discussed the vaccines and all that. Let us know if you were able to navigate the the nonsense, even though I would think wouldn't be too much of that, maybe. But maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Star six one. If you have commentary to share first few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Proceed. Greetings, Thomas, in New York. Greetings, Gus. Greetings. Um, yeah, Thanksgiving non-eventful. Didn't go anywhere. Um, <laughs> um man, Tanahisi Coates. Um, so we know white people better than white people know us. Um, sounds like white people are ignorant about racism or. White people are deeply pained about racism. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates might just be a confused victim who writes down his confusion and to get some money and white validation. Um, I think his confusion is his acceptance of the concept of good white people or white allies, whatever those are. Um, But he has a black wife, black family. He seems to be involved in black issues. On the other hand, Isabella Wilkinson, um, she deliberately and willingly um, is conspiring to confuse and deceive black people to aid white supremacists. Um, That's what I get from her writings. She believes whites can transcend racism, um, like her late husband's 
uh, good white people, that's common amongst confused victims, but white men transcending racism between a black woman's legs, that is something else. That's, that, that's like, you're, you're trying to, you have an agenda. Um, man, um, Minneapolis, totally shocked. 19.4% blacks live in the city of Minneapolis. That's a lot for an urban area. Um, 13% in 1990. A huge amount are um, non-American blacks. Um, and now their offspring who are Americans, um, but still um, non-American. Uh, I wonder how the influx of the foreign blacks impacted the blacks who already lived there. I wonder if there's any research on that. Um, it seems like limited resources that blacks receive uh, have to be overspend in that type of environment, um, especially when people who are sending the resources they get back aboard. Um, it, it just seems like, man, that's a terrible you know situation to live in. Um, the influx of immigrants who get called blacks themselves, uh, I think they have a serious effect on the quality of life of the black Americans who are already here. Um, that's you know, my opinion. Um, black physicians giving this test a stamp of approval doesn't make me feel any better. Um, ben Carson himself can come out and say, it's 100% safe, don't worry, and I wouldn't believe him. Um, this has been propagandized specifically to black populations, um, and since blacks are so disproportionately affected and old people are so disproportionately affected, we're seem to be the test um, specimens for this. Um, the United States has 330 million people. 1% um, of that is 3,300,000. We've had 265,000 people die, meaning 99.96 people survived. Uh, why are we shut down? You know, how many black people lost their jobs? How many black people face an eviction? Now we got to take mandatory shots probably to keep our jobs and public assistance. Sounds like the Tuskegee experiment. Um, the Center for Cancer Research and the National Cancer Institute released in 2018 this document, and you can look it up. It's um, <clears throat> entitled A Noble M. RNA modification can impact the human genetic code. Now, this vaccination is an mRNA vaccination. And just to summarize the document, it says the modification increases the aging process uh, and also causes cancer by increasing the protein production inside of our cells. So they modify the cells and they make them um, um, secrete more proteins which makes them more susceptible to becoming radicalized. Um, they use a lot of fancy terms, but you can get that in that article. Um, I have one more thing to say, but I know you probably got a full line. I'll save it for you. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Yes, ma'am. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, this female call for making. Um, I agree with what you said about the metaphors, especially when they did talk about the slave quarters. And they said it was a metaphor. I'm like, people actually lived there. Um, so, you know, that's interesting. <laughs> well, probably purposeful, but, you know, interesting that they would use those words. Um, with the vaccine, I think before I might have said I was going to, I think I did say I was going to take the vaccine if it came out. I have since, not not just this moment, but I have since changed my mind. Um, I just have to wait. <laughs> if it takes two years or whatever, I just, I would not be the first in line. I'm not a essential worker. No problem. Have fun. Um, also with the uh, with the, like you said, focusing on black people. I've heard all the time when white people talk, they go 50% of the people's polls say they won't take the vaccine. And you can't tell me that they, fold, they polled 50 black people and 50 white people and all 50 black people said they wouldn't take it. And most of the time when they have those polls, they hardly ask black people. The only black person I know that they trying to find their opinion is me. Not that I'm high and mighty, but these Nielsen people, I don't know how they find me. But everywhere I move, they find me. We have questions, whatever. Um, and David Dinkins, you know, rest in power, whatever. I remember my family, they were excited about voting for him, but unfortunately that was the day um, my grandfather died. So he won without any black people in my home because that morning he passed away. We were all sad. So, but we were glad he won, but we were sad that day. So I won't forget the fact that he won and also that incident that they talked about in Crown Heights, Gavin Cato, that was the young man. But it started with they the Jewish person hitting him with their car and nothing happened. Then the black people were like, uh-uh. So they retaliated, and, of course, they got in trouble, and that was, a big to-do, and I lived by there because I'm originally from New York, so I lived by there, and I don't remember everything, but I do remember his name, Gavin Cato. I think he was no more than nine, and he got hit by the car, and that's how that started, and that's all I have for now. Thank you. Have a good day. Best you can. Best we can. He'll probably get a Netflix documentary. Uh, I guess if you have a, a quick moment, what changed your your mind uh, about the vaccine? Was it a progressive thing, or did you get more information? What what tipped things? Um, I guess you know it became progressive, progressive, and I did you know think about the experimentation and things like that, and you know how long it would take, and just just. You know, everything's okay, and I have been fortunate to where I don't have to go outside much the job that I had, and I'm going to start again. Um, I don't have to go outside, and I live with someone now, but they don't have to go outside, and they can only go outside. Well, they can go go outside if they want to, but, you know, (laughs) you have to drive around here, and they don't have a license, so if they really want to go somewhere, I have to take them. So if I don't want to go, they don't go. So everyone's inside. <laughs> and, also, and again, the people around here, because I live in Georgia, they're, I mean, I thought about it because, I thought about getting it because a lot of people around here still, because it's not mandatory with the mask and things, so people are kind of funny and iffy about stuff. But if you time properly, you know, wash your hands, do all those type of things, I feel pretty, 
too confident. Like, I never got a, one time I got a flu shot, I got the flu, so I wasn't really keen on that. Um, just, you know, I miss my family, but, you know, well, I have a family member to list right now. I miss my family, but, you know, that'd be all right. So if I call the ones I need to call, everyone's okay, they stay safe, and, you know, that's all I can do, so. Because I was wearing the mask when they were iffy about wearing the mask. I said, bump that. I sent you the pictures. I'm wearing the mask. I'm masked up. Every day. You barely see my eyes. I don't play that. So, <clears throat> I'm good. Thank you. Uh, that's right. I remember as much of that was real early. She was uh, taking it super serious. Like uh, I'm covered up head to toe when I go outside. Like I'm not joking around. Like uh, whew, I do not need any extra tips from Dr. How- uh, Fauci or anybody else. Much obliged. See, there's one person. Uh, Thomas in New York asked us, you know, are we messing around and we taking the virus or not? There you go. Folks are giving you a very no messing around, no pussyfoot and answer. Uh, the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, before we nab some of the other folks who dialed in, the book club, I am overjoyed. Like, I guess this is compensation for case second worst book that I've read uh, being so bad and maybe deliberately bad uh, as Thomas in New York and many other readers myself included uh, concluded after reading that text Uh, but Jeffrey Tubin the run of his life the people versus OJ Simpson wow I'm not it's (laughs) it's impossible for it to be bad because we're not even reading this because I wanted to study O.J. Simpson. We're reading this because Tubin got fired for masturbating on the Zoom call. Penises in the Zoom all year long. That's what I said. That's why we're reading this right now. And he wrote the definitive work, New York Times bestseller. Uh, his book is what the FX miniseries on O.J. Simpson is based on. That's why we're reading this book. Uh, it just happens that this is the first time that the cows and Gus T personally uh, is doing a like serious study of the OJ Simpson trial. Oh my gosh. I am overjoyed. Like I cannot wait for Thursday, 8 PM Eastern 5 PM Pacific. I think I said uh, on the program, I'd never had like a serious opinion on OJ. I didn't watch the trial. I was a child at that point. So, you know, my, my passion my major emotion was we missed a game of the finals for this OJ Negra. That was my, that was my major feeling about the case for like years, even past the verdict. So this is like my first time making like a serious assessment of all of the, like to put things in context, I had never heard Mark Furman's testimony and prob if you had asked me, like, tell me everything you know, Gus, about Mark Furman. And like, uh police officer, OJ Simpson trial. He said nigger, I think. He called black people nigger. Uh he was on the Oprah Winfrey show. 
uh, afterwards. Like, can you give me some more detail about what he said or what his, you know, involvement was in the OJ Simpson case? Uh, he said, like him saying nigger was about the gist of it. I don't, after that, I would really be grasping. I would probably have to, to do some digging around online or like that would be about the extent of my knowledge, like getting more detail on even just the first week in the book, knowing, Oh, Mark Furman hopped the gate at OJ Simpson's property without a warrant. And they used the justification. They thought he could have been in danger. Like, what like oh and that was how he found the glove at oj simpson's property like wow i had no idea like that would have that alone would have raised an eyebrow if i had known that all this time much less like everything that comes later Woof. the book club i am so excited like uh we haven't even got to we haven't even got to it yet like i had no idea like the people that had griped all these years like did he do it did he kill those people and no count oj right he got away with murder if i had known mark Furman was asked on the stand did you manufacture or perjure or excuse me did you manufacture or plant any evidence and he took the fifth like oh my god like uh if i had known that all these years Oh, I would have had a totally different thought process about the trial. Totally different process, thought process about the trial. But O.J. Simpson, we have listeners, some who are young enough that they didn't see all this or were too young that they didn't pay attention to it. Some folks are a little bit older, so they did watch it and are going back and looking at it, maybe with a counter racist perspective for the first time fascinating study in white supremacy racism in just about every aspect and we're right at the beginning i'm so excited thursday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh other folks who dialed in if you have thoughts observations uh line should be open proceed can i be heard greetings retired firefighter Greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, everyone. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a, a good read. Uh, uh, one reason it's a white person's white person's uh, uh, thoughts on the O.J. Simpson trial, and uh, so that's that's to be something to be expected as far as how he, uh, as a white person, uh, itemizes the trial, um, you know, from that perspective. And, uh, yeah, uh, so I think it's going to be, and also I'm, 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 uh, I second the motion as far as uh, exclusively whites on the program. The, uh, because of uh, that's basically uh, the logical uh, idea in mind of uh, coming up with solutions to the uh, system of racist white supremacy. You you learn from the experts, and and uh, it, it, I, I I think about it, but I don't even want to express it about the whole idea when I hear when I hear. Uh, the the number of non-white people who state that 
we have a great deal of understanding about the global system of racism and white supremacy, including better than white people. Uh, that that's that's. I don't think disgusting would be the proper word, but it wouldn't be good. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I mentioned, uh, uh, I guess it was yesterday about the uh, audio visual system for the DCS program. Uh, that problem was solved uh, uh, within a very short period of time, and it, it literally didn't cost anything because we had all the equipment just had to get put together in a correct process. And I kind of like practice it right in, right in front of where I'm sitting at right now in my uh, in the living room I'm allowed to have. Uh, Thanksgiving, uh, even the word itself, it, it, I, I, I have problems with the word, the combination word Thanksgiving in itself. And what actually, what does that mean? Uh, and, uh, but I, I don't, I don't, I guess I'm a failure as far as practicing it <laughs> on, on the, on the, I think, I think they call it the last Thursday of November. Uh, no. Uh, and, and, and besides, I don't even like Turkey. <laughs> so, so, uh, that, uh, that's a motivation for, for, uh, not recognizing, uh, the day, uh, Logic instructs me that uh, I, as a victim of racist white supremacy, do not have anything to celebrate at all. Uh, so, but I do have some work to do <laughs> uh, in light of things that are daily, as well as relevance to the global system of racist white supremacy, as far as attempting to. Uh, come up with answers to the problem and to be as much as uh, I can as a uh, counter-racist uh, is concerned. Um, I uh, Otherwise, this week, I, I uh, uh, have started having cons uh, conversations with a uh, guy that I literally grew up with. He's a, about a year or two older but we went through the same quote unquote educational system uh, from, well, with him, he was always a grade ahead of me uh, from third grade all the way up to, we graduated from college together. Uh, he was basically, uh, was considered to be less confused uh, through an early process and uh, we would have uh, discussions even as quote-unquote children, uh, historically, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, I somehow think it's necessary to kind of like uh, shorten my conversations because uh, some of the last things that I've heard from him, uh, such as there's no racism in uh, Europe <laughs> uh, and uh, some other things that he was stating, Mind you now, he actually, uh, uh, after graduating from college, uh, ended up uh, getting arrested and going to trial and uh, sentenced and went through three to five years in prison uh, in, in, in greater confinement in this part of the world uh, for the uh, 
the thing that most non-white people go to prison for, which is, you know, uh, drug use. And he may have engaged in some minor uh, entrepreneurship with, with drugs, but he wasn't uh, on the level of a, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the, uh, the guys that, the guy that Denzel Washington played nowhere close to anything like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's basically what was my, my uh, week in itself. And uh, yeah, and that's the only thing I can think about right now. Other, other than that, uh, myself and Thomas, we have constructive conversations on subject, on subject matters during the course of the week, uh, including the, including the uh, book read. We're, we're looking forward to it also. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Arental James. Arental James. I'm so excited. Uh, there's no <laughs> racism in Brazil. That's a popular one. There's no racism in Europe. There's no racism in China. There's no racism in Russia. They pick lots of little spots. There's no racism in Fiji. Always wanted to go to Fiji. They will pick lots of little locations uh, on the planet uh, for whatever reason. And just, oh, there's no racism in fill in the blank. And I'm going there as soon as possible. <laughs> See if I can get me a ticket there. Uh, I never get a postcard or a YouTube video back from anywhere in the known universe where it is confirmed Yes, no negras here. It is spectacular. White supremacy racism doesn't exist. They don't even know what a nigger is. I try to tell a racist joke. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. They don't laugh. Totally different universe. Craziest thing I've ever seen. And I'm never coming back. Don't call me. I've never had that happen before. Hmm. Other folks. If you have commentary, if we missed you totally, star six one. Uh, if you are with us, proceed. Let's see, while other folks are getting their thoughts together, we should be here, I believe, Tuesday. Uh, I think I said. Yesterday, neutralizing workplace racism, I posted a report about uh, it was a McDonald's branch closed temporarily because they had workers test positive for COVID-19. I posted the report. A listener asked uh, what what should parents do? Uh, to get their children to not eat at McDonald's. And I thought about it. I don't have children. I thought about it. It's like, hmm, that's a good point. Like we talked about that. I said, that's that's worth, you know, addressing because I had other come up. We had that segment came up today. Uh, the if folks in Minnesota don't have access to quality food. I've said that for years. They don't put here in Seattle where I said, wow, quality grocery stores everywhere organic produce i made a uh, sweet potato casserole amazing sweet potato. i knew it was going to be uh just outstanding from the moment i picked up the sweet potatoes in the store like 
anything I make with these is going to just be delicious. And it was. We make sure that black people don't live in areas where you're going to have access to that sort of produce. We'll have we'll put the family dollar there so you can get, you know, a 99 cent jar of peanut butter and hope that peanut butter and, you know, sawdust flakes are the only thing that's in it. You know, get get some uh, canned sardines or some spam. You know, and enjoy that. While we'll go, we'll go over here and get our organic kale and purple carrots. We had purple carrots. Uh, they weren't. Oh, we did. We did have purple carrots at the uh, yoga retreat this summer. But yeah, we'll have the purple carrots and the kale and butternut squash. And yeah, you eat it up with the the spam sandwiches from the Family Dollar. Not accident. And then to come back and say that white people are ignorant about racism, well-meaning even. Anyway, uh, there's so many components to the uh, food uh, and quality eating. Even white people make that difficult, even if they do. Why it's important to make sure we invest in quality eating and making that a lifelong goal, lifelong component of counter-racism. That's I think, ties all into that question of how you get your children to not eat McDonald's or fast food in general. You know, you don't want to just trade McDonald's and then end up at Jack in the Box or Subway, whatever it is. Uh, but that'll be Tuesday. We'll talk about food very much related to the Rona as well. A lot of, you know, we talked about that with the retreats and Dr. Lathan. Hopefully we've been talking about that quite a bit on the program. But Tuesday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, if any parents in the meantime want to share any thoughts on uh, successful ways of deterring your children from hanging out, eating at McDonald's and the like, you can feel free to share. Number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks uh, who are with us, we've got folks that we missed totally. If you have a hand up, proceed. May I be heard? Uh, greetings, Mr. Blue. Yes, sir. Greetings, guests. Greetings to all of the guests. I first wanted to comment on the doctor who kept repeating the words uh, Tuskegee experiment, and I found that very frustrating at first because I was, from what I've read about Tuskegee, it was an experiment, and like you said, not an experience, and I thought it was confusing to keep hearing that word experience as if this was something that people had maybe volunteered for or something that um, they were, they had agreed to with full knowledge of what the end outcome and the actual so-called experience would be. So I found that very disheartening to hear a doctor, um, a so-called doctor of medical practices, continue to use that word experience, in particular when talking about black people agreeing to um, clinical trials of a um, 
of an untested vaccination. So that was very disheartening and distressing for me to keep continue to hear. And um, and then the other doctor, I believe the name was Dr. Thompson, who had questions that were continually being unanswered about facts that had not been provided yet about the vaccination. Um, at this point, I do not want to take any vaccinations. I'm concerned about the things that are in the vaccination, different chemicals that could be um, adverse to my overall health. Um, the next thing I was thinking about was St. Mary's College, and they were talking about the reflective sculpture and the uh, slave quarters, and that the idea that the slave quarters were some type of haven for non-white black enslaved people where they could be safe, when historically that had never been the case or the issue um, dealing with plantations and slave owners and overseers having total autonomy to be able to go into slave quarters, whether it was men, women, or children, and um, and have sexual intercourse with them, unwarranted sexual intercourse with them. And it just reminds me, and just made me think about of the when people continue to think that white people are ignorant of slavery. If you're acknowledging that your campus, and then they spoke about many other colleges who were trying to reconcile their history with enslavement of non-white people, non-white black people, that there's no possible way that you could continue or use the narrative that white people are ignorant if they understand that there were slave quarters or that their school or colleges are the site of former plantations. So those, that, that type of thing always um, distresses me a lot when I hear that. And for the fact that you want to use and continue to have more white guests and have no um, non-white black guests, I really I can see the point of that and the logic of that because during corona, I think more time, more time than any time in learning and reading and trying to really understand and be less of a confused victim of racism and white supremacy, I'm finding that now I think non-white black people, for the most part, are even more confused than any other period in history as to what racism is and how it works. Um, with everything that I saw about um, with the push for black people to vote more, um, listening to Joe Biden's um, speech, thanking the population and constituents of black people who voted for him, that that really pushed his nomination towards winning. Um, the, the continued celebration of American, so-called American holidays, like Thanksgiving, and going on things like you know, social media like Facebook and Instagram, and seeing how non-white black people, non-white so-called brown people, Hispanic people, non-white people are continuing to use the narrative of Thanksgiving, not understanding the history, as something to celebrate. That there is, and particularly in this time of Corona, particularly in this time of having a president um, who was who has been in politics for so many years, and who was the, the author, the main author of the crime bill signed by Bill Clinton that affected the lives of hundreds of thousands of black, non-white black people to date. 
and that a simple apology was enough for non-white black people to give them to give him their vote and to use their time to vote for this person. I think that having more white guests and hopefully friends of mine and family members will listen to the cows when I suggest it to them, that they can listen and help them to be less confused about the system of racism, white supremacy, because my conclusion is that white people are not ignorant, white people are not confused with the refinement of racism, white supremacy. It is non-white black people who are confused more than ever, and that is my conclusion um, thus far. And, um, and um, yeah, with the vaccinations, I am, I've always been skeptical of any type of medical vaccinations that are geared towards and white people and non-white black people have been spotlighted and put into the forefront of any type of clinical trial with any new vaccination. Um, there's been many times in the black community, um, Depo-Vera that was introduced when I was becoming a teacher, introduced to uh, junior high school and high school non-white black, specifically non-white black students to take this experimental um, anti-pregnancy drug, um, and I've just seen too many times where non-white black people have been the in the forefront of being asked to be more compliant with some type of clinical trial, and I think that it has, can never be trusted. And I'll meet my line. If I have anything else to say, I'll wait for the end. Thank you. Hmm. Much obliged. Mr. Blue, he was with us uh, down in Florida almost a year ago. Woof, crazy uh, for our counter-racist yoga retreat, eating good vittles and doing a little yoga. Went to the gun range, good times. Um, that is, uh, so we got Thomas in New York, got more folks uh, who have responded to the question. Uh, that's two weeks in a row, incidentally where we've had listeners who have commented and said that they think non-white people are more confused now than they were previously or maybe have been ever. That is, I don't know, astounding (laughs) at some level because at least it seemed during the Obama presidency there were a lot of there was a lot of confusion. I'll just say it that way. A lot of confusion. Uh, a lot of folks who felt that uh, President Obama did not have to answer to white people uh, and could, you know, do what he wanted and that type of thing. Just lots of, of confusion about many things during the Obama presidency. And now it seems uh, a different type of confusion as though the only racists or maybe the only racist is President Trump and maybe the seven people who are with him. And other than that, Biden, everybody else is cool. Like, uh, I don't know. It seemed really, really bad during the Obama years. Uh, it's I, I thought it was horrendous during the Obama years. It's challenging to imagine it's worse. But I mean, that's two weeks in a row where folks are saying, wow, it's really bad. <laughs> like, uh, And has gotten worse uh, over Trump's years in office. That is, if anything, that just shows the power uh, in the system of white supremacy, racism, and just myriad of different ways to keep confusion going. 
make it look like a black person is in charge make it look like we got one racist white person in charge and then we can get rid of him with a non racist white person I mean just lots of different ways that we can continue the confusion of non-white people all the while insisting black people are geniuses about racism context of white supremacy much obliged Mr. Blue Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in Uh, if we missed you totally we have uh, about 30 minutes give or take uh, left in the broadcast Uh, try not to wait until the very end if you think you have comments observations questions to share Uh, other folks uh, thoughts they want to add in Have you heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. Uh, that was another thing I was thinking about now that you mentioned the confusion uh, going from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Now it's going to be the um, Biden administration, apparently. Uh, yeah, the system of white supremacy uh very effective on the minds of non-white people. And in a way, like with um, Joe Biden winning, uh, it just makes me think like, you know, it, I guess it took another racist to be the racist, I guess. And he would have that kind of power, I guess, to uh, resonate with voters to vote for him um, to, I guess, oppose what white people have presented to be what uh, this is what a racist is, the Republican, the uh, what they call conservative or whatever, and they have all kind of terms. Uh, the segment on, I think they were talking about, it got to a point where they were talking about diversity and inclusion and I think that was a white person they did it again where they said uh you seem to be kind of an expert on this topic like what do you mean kind of like you know this is a non-white person more than likely they don't know as much as you do so I think they do that to um I think appeal to the emotion or to make it seem like the non-white person knows more than they do. So with the white person saying that, that'll make the, the victim think, hey, this is the this is the person that's the standard. Like I'm the pinnacle when you say and talking to a, a white person. So if they say it to me, man, this 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 guy, you know, this guy, this uh racist gotta be right about this, I guess. But it's interesting all of the kind of tactics that they'll use. Um but just them saying something like that. Like you're kind of an expert, or, and it almost seems like it's insulting too. But at the same time, they're telling the truth. But they can be uh, like confusing with words like that. And another one was someone said uh, the story America tells about itself or writes about itself. I, I was thinking of what does that even mean? I guess they were talking about since. 
there are more non-white people in positions of that need, or there's been more non-white people in positions of authority, quote unquote. And you know, what, what do they mean by that? Because white people still making the decisions and, um, yeah, they went into saying America can finally write a story about itself or something to that effect. That was definitely confusing. And uh, one last thing I'd like to share is for the COVID cases, there was a report earlier this week that um, University of Florida is the, the number two or ranks number two at having a COVID positive cases. Um, I'm thinking of number one, maybe Texas, I could be incorrect, but that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Wow. So embarrassing. State of Florida. It's been pitiful uh, in the sunshine shade. Sunshine state. All year long. They even lost the convention. The Rona was, remember that this summer? The Rona was so bad. They were going to come down and do the Republican National Convention. They moved it from North Carolina. They were going to do it in Florida. And then the Rona was so bad, they had to move it back. Like, uh, man. Mm, mm, mm. Get it together. Tighten up, uh, Governor DeSantis. Tighten up, man. Tighten up. That's embarrassing. Florida number two in the nation. Now, again, that's one I don't think, because they said that in the report, too black people being reluctant to follow the guidelines and I said whoa 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 that's not even true I haven't seen any reports about uh, black people specifically are not following uh, guidelines in terms of social distancing masks and all of that that's flagrantly I have seen white people doing that in fact I've seen the opposite reports that have said in fact they had the report about the HBCUs in North Carolina where they were not uh, tops in the state uh, for Rona cases that they had much lower rates because black people were taking it seriously and wearing masks and all the rest of it. So I was appalled. Yeah. At that uh, report for a number of reasons, uh, the medical medical reports and talking about the vaccine and all the rest of it. Uh, I thought that was important to kind of an expert because uh, I think they were talking to uh, a black person, victim of racism. There was just audio there, but I think they were talking to uh, a non-white person and they say that you're kind of an expert. What does that even mean? Uh, and even even there again, suggesting that you have some sort of expertise on white supremacy racism, but maybe kind of <laughs> like uh Standard operating procedure. That is wild, though. The, the, the college, I've said that. That's kind of an extension. The universities and what have you. I've said white people do not care about children. What is happening at the uh, college level with the Rona? I mean, wow, it's been lots of reports of that where they've had these outbreaks and what have you. Uh, and the students, white students not taking it seriously and partying and all the rest. I will say a lot of the reports that I've heard, the universities have said, Hey, we have done as much as we can do. Certainly we have gone above and beyond legal obligation and all the rest. A lot of the contamination is happening at these, uh, Arona parties and, you know, they're still going out drinking and sororities and all the rest. It's nothing we can do about it. So, you know, Hey, I can't exact the universities and what have you, I guess they can say, Hey, we've done as much as we can do the white defiance uh, at the student level. If that's the way that they're going to behave, then, you know, Hey, that's what you're going to have. Florida will be number two. I think he said university of Texas might be number one. That's what you'll have.
white defiance at all. They, that should just be a term. Like they have multiple reports that come out and black people are, you know, hesitant about the virus and they don't want to get in the trials and rah, rah, rah. white defiance has been on display much more this year than so-called black hesitation uh, about the Rona trials or Rona vaccinations or anything else. Uh, unless I'm mistaken. I don't think so. I've been paying attention to this since, you know, the spring. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks, uh, comments that they would like to share. Uh, I'll Keep an eye out, see if we have uh, folks that we missed totally uh, to make sure we get them in before we wrap things up. Uh, Folks who had uh, an extra comment or two, if you want to get those in before we wrap up, feel free. Can it be heard again? Uh, Retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Um, Yeah, I I have uh, been uh, stating to a few others lately that uh, that uh, people are going to get challenged into making it difficult to make the decision on whether or not to take the uh, vaccine. Uh, it could be a situation to whereas certain uh, professions. Uh, if you uh, would like to, if you made a choice to venture into that profession, uh, you would have to take that test. If you would want to maintain your your position in a particular profession, you would have to take the test. You know, I'm just giving examples. I, I'm I'm not a uh, predictor of the future, but I, I wouldn't. Uh, dismiss it from the white supremacists to uh, do such things. Uh, it, it, and even if the person was um, still determined to not take the test, uh, just like they do with a lot of vaccines, then they would uh, make it a requirement with your offspring. Uh, before you send your offspring to our school, he or she has to be vaccined, and it has to be proof of vaccined. Uh, so it's, it's going to be it's, it's going to be a challenge in, in some sort of way. Uh, and I think I have a historical background on that when it comes to vaccines. I think everybody on this line, as some form of fashion, has had a vaccine. Uh, and in a lot of cases, it wasn't a whole lot of uh, matters of choices in you having that vaccine. For the most part, you were you weren't the person who made the decision. It was it was a quote unquote parent that had to make that decision for you. So that's 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 another way that the races uh, uh, would uh, make it make it challenging on the decision-making processes. And, uh, yeah, unless somebody can tell me something different. Thank you. 
much obliged retired firefighter I think it'll be I'm just I'm curious in terms of implementation uh, if terms if, if they want to say like for school purposes that you were talking about say you got to have vaccine uh, in order to be enrolled even university level right say University of Florida you know you know mm-hmm. Gusty is right we're tired of this you know us being second in the nation with the Rona and everything got to be vaccinated you're coming back here uh, nobody else you're not going to be a student at Gainesville if you're not vaccinated uh, or uh, jobs you know might be if you're going to get a job at the fire department or wherever else uh, you got to be vaccinated if you're going to work here now you've got a hefty number of white people who said I'm not even willing to wear a mask <laughs> like you're not going to tell me to wear a mask you're not going to tell me to social distance like none of it so if you've got like and not a small number like I said it looks like thousands tens of thousands could be hundreds of thousands I don't millions maybe I don't know lots of white people who said I'm not even willing to wear a mask I would assume you also got lots of white people who are going to say the same thing I'm not going to get a vaccine so how is that going to work if you got a substantial number of white people who say "Eh, it's no Rona it's a conspiracy not wearing a mask not getting a vaccine how is that going to be implemented on a wide scale basis at least here in the states that vaccine for school vaccine for work like how how, I just yeah how would that be reconciled uh the white defiance mandatory vaccinations how would that be reconciled good question I don't know I I don't know Uh, I have to think on that myself if anybody has any thoughts on that one feel free because I uh, yeah I don't know I don't I don't I don't know what the the means if they say it's mandatory right like you can't fly if you don't get a vaccine or you can't go to school if you don't get a vaccine I guess that would be the enforcement enforcement just to exclude you from the the service but like I mean I could see a substantial number of white people saying well oh, well we just won't be going to Gainesville <laughs> like uh it looks like that's what it would be like a lot of white people just saying I'm not going to do that because I'm not, you know, like I just said, white defiance. Maybe I'm wrong. Other folks' uh, thoughts that they wanted to share? May I be heard? Uh, Mr. Blue, yes, sir. To that, to that point, here in New York City in 2019, um, either it was, a, I think it was a measles, epidemic or smallpox so-called epidemic happening in the schools. And what happened in 2019 under the leadership of now Governor Cuomo, um, the state legislator um, made a bill, they voted on a bill and passed the bill, whereas um, I applied for school in 2017 at City College and it was mandatory to get vaccinations. And I got religious exemption, so I would not have to take any vaccinations. And in 2019, because of that um, epidemic that was going on in the elementary schools, Governor Cuomo got a bill signed where um, religious exemptions in New York City are now not recognized. You cannot say that you are religious exempt from any vaccination um, putting your children in school. So that is one way how they have sort of um, 
bypass mandatory vaccinations and people who do not want to get mandatory vaccinations, primarily with the white community. The black community here in New York City have been opposed, but not as loud as the white community in New York City and possibly around the country, but specifically here in New York City. Um, but now, if anyone wants to use religious exemption as a reasoning for not getting a mandatory vaccination, particularly with putting your children in school, that is now a mute point that cannot be done. And um, to another point I was thinking about, um, the previous show where it was talking about the Boy Scouts of America and the whole concept and idea of white people being ignorant to to racism, white supremacy, and also how they treat their children and that they do not love and have respect for their children. And thinking about 95,000 cases of pedophilia and sexual misconduct in the Boy Scouts of America, and the oldest complainant being 98 years old to the youngest complainant being eight years old, that's a hundred years, a hundred years of mis sexual misconduct against young boys in the Boy Scouts of America. And there's no possible way that this was not known by other white people not known by the Boy Scouts of America in general and just was biding their time until now um, what's happening is that that organization was eventually pulled and they were um, equaling it to the, to the Catholic Church. But when you go to the Catholic Church and think about the Catholic Church uh, and the reports that we've heard and the allegations of sexual misconduct and pedophilia, but the Catholic Church is even older than the Boy Scouts of America. So we're talking about several hundred years of misconduct, and I just that sort of kind of just blew my mind thinking about that. And I've been just thinking about that for the past week or so. Like, wow, ninety-five thousand people being abused—it's just mind-blowing. But in New York City, 2019, Governor Cuomo, yes, you cannot use religious exemption as a reasoning for not getting a mandatory vaccination. And I believe uh, last week because New York City schools have been closed again because of the so-called second wave of coronaviruses, um, there's been mentioned in the news that um, mandatory vaccinations will probably start at the, the, the elementary school level. I'll mute my line. Thank you. Everyone have a good night. Much obliged. Can I be heard? Mr. Blue. Heard. Got you as well, Thomason. Uh, New York. Yeah, we talked about that last week. The Boy Scouts uh, report probably underreported with the sexual abuse thing. They that's what they generally say that most of the cases do not get reported. So even the report as it stands is probably a low count. And I think there was a statute of limitations too. So I'm certain that's a low count. Anywho, uh, with the vaccines, that's out here. When I say out here, uh, Seattle. Uh, California, the West Coast, I know that was big as well uh, within the last, I'll say five years or so uh, in terms of white people being opposed, uh, staunchly opposed to 
vaccines and they even changed did the same thing changed some of the laws uh, out here at a state level like in Washington state and even uh, in California because I think here they had uh, it was measles uh, like a measles outbreak and they were saying that it was because white parents were not vaccinating their children uh, and that was what was reported as being the, the source of this outbreak as it's called uh, but they started changing some of those exemptions so you couldn't you know just Oh, religious exemption or whatever it is to get out of uh, these vaccinations. They started closing uh, what they call loopholes uh, for these exemptions. So I'm sure that will come up again. In fact, some of the white people were talking about that earlier this year when they were saying they're not going to get these vaccines. So, yes, all that will be something to be mindful of uh, as all this continues to uh, unfold. Thomas in New York. Yeah, so Boy Scouts. Now, scouting comes straight out of Nazi Germany. Um, Hitler Youth. Um, uh, I went to Catholic school. Grammar school, it was nuns. High school, there was monks, these brothers. And uh, I was a Boy Scout for two weeks. And very similar feel being around those people. And it's ironic, their, um, their situations seem to mirror each other. Um we're on the cusp of um, what they call the fourth industrial revolution. Um, they call it Industry 4.0 um, in the world's most powerful white people, um, the WEF. They call it the Great Reset. So surveillance capitalism, um, contact tracing or um, surveillance is going to be a part of it. Uh, Ticketmasters already said you can't enter a venue. If you haven't been vaccinated or taken a test within 24 to 48 hours of the event, um, and I think I said it last week, I imagine movie theaters and other things with the technology, very easy for them to do. They use it in China, straight fake issue recognition. They know who you are. They know your credentials. Um, just um, we're on the, the verge of that happening. Um, Gus, I told you... Um, um, no one I know thought O.J. was guilty after that trial. Um, you know, the media made him guilty by public opinion and tricked black people, in my opinion, into, you know, after years of that. Of course, if you were black and you said he was innocent, man, were you attacked on the media when this happened? I mean, it became, you became, um, someone who would not get um, to get called back on the news, CNN, you won't be, um, you weren't very popular. You were, you were attacked. Um, you got the Nick Cannon treatment. Um, the records they kept out of court that detail Mark Furman um, and the LAPD uh, officers using pregnant black female as a shield and beating black men to a pulp and covering the blood in their dark uniforms. It's just, you know, they kept that out. Um, and they put an Asian judge there. It's, you know, when you go back and look at it, it's just so so white supremacist. You know, let's get an Asian to do it. You know, um, we could blame him when everything goes wrong. Um, uh, the, I looked it up um, after the last show. I was going to save this for the, the – but it says the, um, the article came up, reaction to the verdict of the O.J. Simpson criminal trial. And this was in Wikipedia, um, not the best source, but – um, just to 
paraphrase it, it says most black 70% agreed with the verdict while most white 75% did not agree with the verdict. And I would go on a limb and say that number for black people is probably 70% now that disagreed with that verdict and um, 30% who agreed that he was innocent. It's just how they can um, use their propaganda angle to constantly reinforce something in you, you know, um, sort of like, um, and I said this a few weeks ago, that this election was far from over. Now, this is a big week. We're going to see a, a little bit of the verbiage change. Um, this is far, I, I would say, Trump's chances of remaining president is closer to 80%. I was 70% a couple weeks ago, 80% now, based off of if, they, if they're going to follow the U.S. Constitution or not. Which they have to. So we'll see. The media is in on it. Don't listen to them. They are a part of it. You know what I'm saying? Don't listen to them. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is, um, man, we have people um, build Black Wall Street, black people in Oklahoma in the late 1800s, and we know white people burned it down in 1921 around that area. Um, and it took decades for these black people to build this bolstering economic engine in this city. Um, in, in 1830, the U.S. enforces the Indian Removal Act. From 1830 to 1850, they removed Indians from southeast to um, relatively unsettled and slave and plantation-free Oklahoma to settle there. They call it the Trail of Tears. So um, it's obvious that these Indians... And these black people who built Wall Black Wall Street have to be the same people. There's no Mexican or Bolivian looking people who live in Oklahoma, you know, at that time. It's, or, uh, unless you're going to tell me they built Black Wall Street, um, you know, um, they're obviously um, a mixture of white and Asian people all throughout this region. Um, but all of the quote unquote Indians. They just put Afro in front of their name. They're everywhere. Afro Panamanians, Afro Brazilian. They just put the Afro in front of their name. Those are the Indians. I mean, my line thinking. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Um, missed out on the Boy Scout experience. Thankfully. Thankfully. Um, I'd seen that where now I think most people, most black people uh, agree with uh, or most black people think OJ did it. That's it. Most black people uh, think OJ is guilty of the murders, even though that was not the case uh, at the time of the trial 25 years ago. Uh, If anything, that shows the power of white supremacy, racism. Uh, I can't you can't even include the Fox F, excuse me, miniseries, because I think that was the case before that series even aired. That most black people, everybody, thinks OJ did it. As I said, uh, having just, just really within the last since we, Jeff Tubin exposed his penis, that's when I started looking at all this seriously for the first time ever. Just beginning to look at the evidence and some of the things that happened and we are going chronologically. So we just started the book. So we aren't even at the Bronco chase in the book. Good times ahead. 
Uh, but just looking at the evidence, I said, oh, wow, like this is a trial that like it would have been when they say, OK, if I had been on the jury, OK, jurors, uh, you're dismissed. Go deliberate and let us know. This would have been like fellas, ladies, gentlemen, we're going to play one hand of cards just to make this look good. And then we're going back inside like we don't need to talk about nothing. It's nothing to deliberate. Like we're going to play one hand and then we're going back inside for our not guilty. All right. All right. Let's get the cards out and ride like, and then I found out that's about what it was. Like uh, they didn't sit down for weeks or nothing. They went and they played one hand of cards. And came back. It was like, I cannot believe it. Like, cause I didn't know I had no idea. I thought the jury was out and they hung out for like five months and I, Nope. One hand of cards and we're done. Like the power, if anything, everybody, if you look at the evidence for this, it shouldn't even have anything to do with Mark. That's just like icing on the metaphor. That's just like icing on the cake. Like, oh, Mark Furman said, just look at the evidence of what happened as we roll through this. Everybody due process isn't that what they talk about due process and all every it's nothing to think about should oj simpson have been acquitted absolutely ain't nothing to think about ain't nothing to talk about absolutely even do you think he did it based on the trial at best i don't know at best i don't know easily could be probably not but do you think he did it oh absolutely or excuse me should he have been acquitted it should be unanimous. Absolutely. Woo! Cannot wait till we get to the trial in the book. Any other comments folks need to get in before we uh, sign out? One more thing, Gus. Uh, well, two more things real quick. Uh, here's a Steve Coakley video on YouTube. And OJ is in the crowd in the video while he's giving his dissertation. OJ walks in. And he gives, he acknowledges OJ. They give him a round of applause. And he says, I'm working on the case to find out who really killed his wife. And OJ was paying him. Uh, it's a, it's actually on YouTube. I'm sure you can find it. I can't remember the name of it. It's old. But, um, um, yeah, also, um, uh, yeah, I forgot the other thing. This happens to me every week, man. Um, it was about OJ as well. Oh, the, the basketball game, because you mentioned that. Yes. Oh, man. Gus, you, you were mad. I'm here in this area. <laughs> I had people uh, all lined up in my grandmother's living room. They all looked like Spike Lee. I hate the mix. So, you know, I was just there and I was just rooting against them, the only one. And they changed it. And first, OJ was in a little box. And then the game became the little box. <laughs> if they tried to watch the little box on the TV, it was hilarious. But, um, yeah, I wasn't upset at all. <laughs> We didn't even get the little box. Like they totally removed the game. It was all OJ Simpson. It's go- oh my! I was fear like if that had happened the year before, when Michael Jordan was in the finals, apoplectic. Like I would have killed someone myself. Much less like. He did it. He didn't do it. We got to watch the Bronco chase. Like 
the final. I can't even emphasize. I didn't care about this case at all. I was a child, so I mean, this wasn't like I was an adult behaving this way, but I mean, uh, that was it. This interrupted the finals. Like someone should be held accountable for that. Who gets to make that decision to take off the finals? To and I didn't know who O.J. Simpson was. He was just the Hertz commercial. Like I didn't, I didn't know. Uh, I hadn't seen him play football or any of that. So, yeah. But furious about the finals. That was my only connection to the case at all. No concern about OJ. I didn't think he was railroaded and no count racist Mark Furman. Who cares? The flipping Knicks. We are missing the finals. Like other folks with comments that they needed to get in. Can I be heard? Uh, Mo in Dallas. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, greetings. Uh, greetings, everyone on the line. Um, uh, the, I guess I'll start with what you guys were talking about, the O.J. Simpson thing. Um, I do, I have, like, just as of recently, I've been asking, um, victims, um, have, if they thought he was guilty, and I'm also getting, uh, uh, uh surprisingly, and older people, like, oh, yeah, he did. Like, you know, it's not even a question. And I, that was surprising. Even like you know, I I I've went down a rabbit hole with the case, and you know, just the timeline didn't add up. You know, stuff like that. Uh, the fact that the, the 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 male that was killed was, I think, Ron Goldman was like a black belt or something like. Like it doesn't matter. Like you know, he still did it. Like so, I'm like, no defense. He did it. Okay, whatever. So, um, to the uh, vaccines, vaccinations. Um, um, uh, I think American born, um, victims of racism are at a serious disadvantage. Um, from what I, from what I believe, and I could be an error, but all other, uh, demographics or a majority of other demographics, they have kind of, um, cultural enclaves where they can, you know, educate their own children. Uh, they have their own stores. You know, they have their own societies inside of this one. And I don't think American-born um, victims of racism um, have that um, in, in, in any serious abundance. So we are directly dependent on the system that is in America. Um, and I think that that is going to heavily affect the amount of the amounts of vaccinations that we're going to require uh, it's just something i believe um, and uh, uh another thing um to thomas in new york when he mentioned that he, the um indigenous people here were um african or or, or just black people um i think it's vicente guerrero's grandson he also uh, logged that the indigenous people of Mexico were actually black. So, like, the Mexicans are like a, uh, or the, what we know today as Mexicans are considered, uh, like, Spanish mulatto hybrids or something, like something wild. That's all I have on me, my line. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Most people think he did it. 
the power of racing. And he may well have. I was not in Brentwood, California, 1994. He, I was waiting on the finals, but he may well have. Uh, but the first question, should he have been convicted? It should be unanimous. Anybody who, you know, looked at the evidence, doesn't really matter even how you feel about him. Like, you think he's a coon, you think he's the best football player ever, mad that he interrupted the finals, <laughs> like, whatever. Just looking at the evidence, cursory glance, oh, yeah, unanimous. He shouldn't have been convicted. Now, you know, whatever. <laughs> he did it, he didn't do it, whatever. Cool in the gang, but just looking at the evidence, unanimous. Uh, and like, I there shouldn't be a whole lot of, you know, I don't know. I got to scratch and think real hard. No. Five minutes. We're going to play cards and go get a verdict. Uh, did we miss anybody? I think we basically were at the end. We didn't miss anybody. Everybody good? Um, can I be heard again? Retired firefighter. Yeah, I, I would just like to say uh, that, uh, and I think I expressed it before on the program on how popular uh, Rental James Simpson was. Uh, he didn't attend USC until his junior year because he, you know, basically didn't qualify. That's why he went to junior college. Then he went to his wife, his first wife actually helped him uh, get up to the level that he needed to be in order to enter into the University of Southern California. Uh, as probably everybody knows, the University of Southern California is an epicenter for Hollywood executives. Almost immediately, they were recruiting Orenthal James Simpson to be a non-white black male marketing uh, figure. Uh, uh, primarily, it was uh, in the aftermath of the quote-unquote, black power era, that sort of thing. And uh, Renthal James Simpson was totally against that, uh, anything like that. And uh, uh, and they knew it. The white people knew it, understood it as such. And he would be willing to say and do anything that the white people wanted him to, to say and do in order to uh, get the attention and the money and whatever the, the compensation for that. Uh, doing so during that pro- so he ended up Joe Namath was the first athlete quote unquote seconds. athlete to be in that way but OJ at least was leveled with him he may have surpassed him and by the time and, and the thing about it with those attorneys uh, and we we've we've already read it the, that part is that the attorneys understood racism white supremacy to the standpoint and they use it to their advantage to to win the trial and uh, by by uh sacrificing Los Angeles the police department in, in the in the face of that white enforcement official that race soldier I can't, I can't think of his name and I'm pretty sure everybody knows his name uh and <laughs> And and also they were able to keep the trial in Los Angeles, and it was as everybody said it was on TV every day uh, during that time. And also, I would say probably about ninety percent of the jury were non-white black people of the era who deeply admired 
O.J. Simpson. They didn't know him. They didn't know him personally. They knew him from watching him on TV. Much so obliged. Much. And that's, that's, that's basically how he got, he got out, yes. Much obliged, retired firefighter. That is way down at the end of the jury. But, yes, we'll get to – eventually we'll get to all oh, that. When we that. pick up next week, we will pick up at the – we're not even at the Bronco chase. We're right at the beginning of the book. So, eventually we will get to all that. But, yes, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Jeffrey Tube. And, again, we're not even reading this because – it's just, yes, now is the time, 25 years later, to study O.J. Simpson. That's not why we're reading this. We are reading this, the same sexual perversion that was just mentioned with the Boy Scouts, Jeff Tubin, penises on the Zoom. That's why we're reading. Even in the middle of that, Alan Dershowitz is on the Dream Team. Man, I said he said the exact same thing in the Simpson trial that he said in the Jeffrey Epstein case about I just do the, you know, whatever I can that is legal and fair to defend my client. Exact same thing in the Jeffrey Epstein case. Raping children, white people and children. We'll wrap it there. Uh, Much obliged for folks participation should be here Tuesday. Food, keeping your children from McDonald's. Uh, Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need our brain computer uh, for many tasks, most importantly to follow logic. Am I going to get this Rona vaccine? Did OJ do it? How do we defeat racist man, racist woman, racist child permanently? We will need a sober brain computer to solve those problems. In addition, Man, I would still say hunker down like I guess we got through Negro Friday and all the rest of it. It just means we're going into another uh, holiday season where people will be brawling and fighting in the aisles over whatever and masks and all the rest of it. Uh, You still have lots of armed whites Uh, probably mean a lot of white people going out to buy firearms for Christmas gifts and all the rest. So I would be very mindful of that. We're not looking to have verbal confrontations with anybody, white people, non-white people, for any reason. It uh, looks like they're trying to turn up. Might be more crowded, right, going to stores and stuff. So people are getting rowdy over parking spaces and all that. No verbal confrontations. If it looks like somebody is getting rowdy and turned out, uh, turned up out in public, we should be thinking this person could be armed. She, he might have a gun and or five twenty friends with them who are also all armed. Exit. That's what we should be thinking. Anytime it looks like somebody is being a little bit volatile, hostile, time to go. <laughs> no engagement, no taking risks. 2020 has been a very dangerous year. Not adding to it, taking unnecessary risks with volatile strangers in public. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places 
each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling. Super important. Even other victims of white supremacy who say that white people are ignorant about racism. Don't name call them either. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.